Good day, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Merge Worlds, the Dungeons & Dragons story podcast. I appreciate you taking a little time out of your evening to share with me and allowing me to share this story with you. Um, this is episode 24. Uh, we are now at, I think I estimated it, at around 59 hours worth of story uh, up to this point. And still so much more to go. Um, but I'm excited that last time we kind of hit the big climactic ending of what was the early big part of the campaign. We finally tied off and finished up a large amount of storylines, uh, including the big one, which were those artifact weapons. Um, so we'll kind of do a little bit of a recap of what happened, and then uh, we'll get into today's episode. Today's episode will start with a lot of reading. Um because I have uh, a lot more... Whenever I started a campaign or adventure from this point, I, I, I started doing more and more writing down things to remember to say. Ideas that I had um, as I was coming up with the story. So, um, pretty uh, pretty excited to jump into this with you all. Um, hey, Turtle, what up, man? Uh, so, yeah. So, as you may remember, if you were here last time... Oh, there's Jim. Hey, Jim. Uh, hope feeling well. Yes, feeling mostly okay. Uh, still a little bit sore. I have a hard time walking around for very long, but other than that, I'm doing okay. Uh, I've got a doctor's appointment Wednesday to find out how well things are and whether or not I can get it pulled out or not, and I'm going to be in good shape. So overall, I'm doing okay, but thank you, though. Um, so last episode, our heroes, after years of adventuring, finally found the central gate at the source, which was... A floating island over the center of what they thought was the Southern Ocean. Um, which turns out the Southern Ocean is actually the middle of the world. A big ocean in the center. Um, and there's just massive sized continents below and all around it. Uh, that no one in this area had even traveled to at this point. Um, but uh, there they used the artifact weapons to defeat... Uh, Nylat Fire Moon once and for all, um, and then use those weapons to open the final gate. And by doing so, they released into the world a pair of gods. Uh, two gods, um, Omnion and Anyana, that together form one major god, Omniana. Uh, two gods trapped within one body. One is the god of chaos, one is the goddess of order, and they're constantly fighting to see which one is better, chaos or order. And so, since the beginning of time, they slipped through when the other gods did to create this universe. And the other gods didn't know they were here. They've been in those weapons all this time. Um, and used them to create not a world, but another plane of existence. Which is what Merged Worlds is. A uh, place of perfectly ordered chaos. A place where they can finally, once and for all, gamble and see who is more powerful, chaos or order. Um, they learned that... What they'd lived, that time, every, basically the, the time from the merge to when they got to that island had happened many, many times. Different people, different groups, and in each situation, everyone failed until this group. So it could have been years, decades, centuries since the original merge ever happened. And going back home, most of the people they knew and loved would all be gone. So pretty much everybody decided to stay on Merge World and make a life for themselves. Um, Darsh gave Dandy the smaller of his two ships, the Miss Dandelion, and her and Michael went off um, to basically take up Michael's new quest of hunting and destroying undead. Uh, Darsh and his new ship, the Morgenstern, uh, which is Morningstar, um, began 
building a home on a set of islands that he'd found in the previous adventure, um, as well as starting a um, business, if you will, uh, shipping and so on and so forth, um, merchants, that kind of thing. Um, Dandy and Mercy went way north to the temple that Artemis, or sorry, Artemis and Mercy, went north to the temple that Artemis had inherited, um, basically given to her by her god specifically, and uh, she decided to build a larger temple there, and Mercy decided to build herself basically a castle, for all intents and purposes. More like a large fort, but a castle. Um, and that they would then oversee that area and try to protect the small towns and the people of that area that for generations have been oppressed by one group or another. Uh, not to take them over and lead them or become king of all the land, but to be a force for good and to protect those people. Um, and so they, there was a big lake there. The uh, temple is on one side of it. There's a, a rise that goes up over a hill up on the other side, and that's where Mercy built her keep. So they're literally right next to each other. Um, the temple grounds and all of that belongs to Artemis and the temple. Everything else around there, Mercy has claimed for herself. There was really nobody else who claimed that land. That land came through the merge mostly, and uh, no one disputed them taking it, especially since they basically saved the area. People are like, okay, that's fine. The area is a little wary, especially some of the towns of these people sliding in. They've had a lot of people oppress them, so they're a little nervous. The fact that the temple's there helps. Because, again, everybody everybody wants a healer next door. Um, so, Artemis and Mercy, or the young ladies that played those characters, had to decide on a name for that area. Um, and that name, something we tossed around and what they wanted to do. Um, and they decided to name their kingdom, basically, Serenity. Serenity Lake is what that is. That's what it was known as by the people in that area. Serenity Lake was a... People go up there, fish, and it was calm, which is mostly the magic of the temple, um, which is a place where people go and so on and so forth. So taking that over, they decided to take the name of Serenity Lake, uh, Lake and make that the name of their kingdom. So Serenity is now the name of Mercy and Artemis's little kingdom temple combo around that lake. The old temple was basically bulldozed secretly because they're... Only a couple people could know that there's a secret underground place that leads to a cavern underneath. Um, obviously, somebody had to know, so Artemis had to trust the dwarf that they hired, and he only brought in a special small group of people he could trust to not let that out. So that was a little secret of building area while everybody else was around. It's easy to hide it. You say, hey, listen, because it's a temple, it has to be blessed. Only a certain amount of people can be here. None of, none of the other building, whether humans or dwarfs, wants to do anything that's going to unsanctify holy ground, that's super bad luck, right? So they're like, okay, cool, we won't go in there. Um, and that's kind of how we worked it out, where they were able to build their little, more improved way of getting down to the cavern known as Tavian's Tears, which is a holy water, a lake that was blessed by Tavian himself, the god of healing. So, they've, this is, where we're jumping in right now is probably about 13, 14 months after we left the characters. Um, a lot of progress has been made by all of them. Um, and you may remember that at the end of the previous adventure, uh, Tobias, their friend the wizard, gave them each basically a small crystal ball that they could talk to each other through. And once per month on a specific day, they all reach in, how are things going, do you need any help, so on and so forth. Um, how are things for you? And, and just keeping up with everybody, make sure everybody's safe. Of all of them, Dandy's probably in the most dangerous situation. Because her and Michael are constantly out fighting undead. Uh, Darsh has to worry about sea dragons and pirates and stuff. 
Mercy and Artemis, not so much. Occasionally, goblins, brigands, things that slide through there, but not too much at all. Uh, so overall, pretty, pretty good. Um, oh, hello, Xbox. Thank you for coming by. All right, so been about 14 months. Uh, both the temple and the Serenity uh, Castle, basically is what you want to call it, um, again, Mercy did not take any names such as Queen or anything of that nature. Um, but she is viewed as a noble in this area for all intents and purposes. Lord knows she has the money for it. So Lady Mercy is pretty much how she's known as by the people in the towns. And none of the towns have any animosity to her. Some towns are a little bit happier than she's there than others. Moonbrook um, and the, what's his name? Oakleaf, which Oakleaf, remember, was pretty much burned to the ground. Uh, they've re Some people have rebuilt that slowly. Those two, and uh, Nardell, which is the little one they came through first, those three towns are probably the closest with them. There's some more towns to the west uh, that they have a little bit of trade with and such that are known of in this area. Um, but they didn't directly go in and save those people, so those people don't view them quite as hero-like as the other ones do. But overall, it's been pretty good. No major issues overall. As the castle and the temple has grown, so has the followers. And the people that have been attracted to it, Mercy is taken in at this point. There's tons of people here building. You're building a castle. You've got a lot of people coming in from Paxawall and even some of the surrounding people from the villages who maybe their farms were still decimated from before need work. A lot of people have come to her for work and is able to do that. I mean, you think about it, not only is there work to be done at the temple, work to be done there, roads, um, sewers, there's a lot of just manual labor that can be done. Lumbering, taking, cutting down trees, removing all that, get, preparing the wood. Um, both Mercy and Artemis are very wealthy through their adventures, and with the other funding of the Temple of Paxwall helping, they're able to pay well. Um, so that really brought a lot of people in and brought them um, a really positive outlook from the area because they started really throwing in some money into an economy and they're building an economy as things are coming in from Paxawall services and goods that they need to uh, you know, live and survive new goods and services are now available to the other towns as well so maybe those people are coming up and selling to the people there. Oh, you, you've got a t you live in a tent. You're here for six months working on the castle. I make blankets. Would you like a blanket? Hey, I got a pill. You know, they can sell their goods. I have clothing. I fix shoes, things of that nature. It brings a ton of businesses, and the whole economy of the area has very quickly boosted up faster than it ever has in its history. Uh, but now we're going to go ahead and jump into the actual story. It's a little bit of intro. I just want to kind of give you an idea of what the timeline was like and where we are at this time. And happy early birthday, Xbox. I did see that. I wanted to get that done first. <laughs> All right. So again, a bunch of reading today. Bear with me. Uh, so, New Beginnings is the name of this chapter. So Mercy looks out over Lake Serenity from her horse, admiring the view. Um, it's a warm spring day, and the sun is shining high in the sky. Now, I'm going to interrupt myself here one quick second. As I talked about, this is not a regular world. It's a plane of existence. It's not a round world. It's shaped like a goblet, except flat on top so on and so forth. There are multiple suns and multiple moons that move in ex basically one after another. So it's everybody has a 24-hour day, but it takes more than 24 hours for the sun to do a full circle. So there are multiple that are going in perfect unison, sun, then moon, then sun, then moon. This means the sun and moon are always on the same trajectory because the world's not turning, which is why the stars never moved before. The stars are in a fixed place because literally the sun and moon revolve around this plane of existence, and there are several. 
She can hear the workmen behind her, the tapping of the hammers and their conversation. Pulling her eyes from the water below, she turns to look at Serenity Keep. It's amazing to think it's been a year since construction began. So much progress had been made, but it would still be some months before it would be completed. If you know anything about history, building castles takes a long time. Turning back to the lake, Mercy's eyes scanned the opposite shore. Even from here, she could see Artemis' temple also being built. Scanning the shore, Mercy could also see smaller buildings. Most were temporary homes used by Dublin's workmen. Dublin is the dwarven uh, who basically runs the company they've hired to build these things from Paxwell. But here and there, more permanent structures would be seen. It wasn't long after construction began that local businessmen started to arrive, requesting permission to build businesses to cater to the workmen. Mercy worked out leasing agreements with many of them, or with any of them who built in any of the land she had claimed as her own. Her prices were very fair, and with what they were making off the workmen, they could easily afford it. So, she said, this land here is mine at this point. Somebody's like, hey, you got a lot of business here. I could bring my cart up every day, hours and hours, or I could build a stall, or a marketplace, or even a permanent store. If I live far away, maybe I want to have a store here, because this looks like a long-term business opportunity. They're leasing the land. The land is hers, she, good pricing. She doesn't really necessarily give the land away. She doesn't sell it. None of the stuff around this area. The town itself, in time, may end up a little different. The largest of the building was a two-story structure known as the Iron Steed Inn. Owned by Walter Bovis and his wife, Elora, it had become quite a popular place. Bovis was an exceptionally large man who didn't suffer trouble, so rarely had there been any incident. So that, this is an inn that a lot of people are traveling in from day two. There's other little ones, but th th that's probably the biggest structure other than the castle and the temple. Mercy got her horse moving back down the hill toward the small home she lived in. It was a simple three-room dwelling and had been built by her men while she and her friends were at the source a year earlier. Tying off Namid, which is the name of her horse, outside, Mercy went inside to change. Her morning ride had been quite wonderful, um, but she was supposed to meet Artemis for lunch. Washing off the sweat from her morning ride, Mercy quickly changed into her leathers. Tying her hair up with a black ribbon, she quickly looked up at her home and remounted Namid. Turning him towards the temple, she hurried on her way. So they kind of get together at least once a week because they're very busy ladies. But they try to make sure that they always have lunch once a week, talk about stuff, and just kind of have some time. So now we're going to switch over to Artemis. No, I think I prefer the blue one, said Artemis. The seamstress nodded and placed the roll of cloth on the keeper's pile. Excusing herself, the woman gathered up the remaining rolls and exited the room, pleased with her sail. Artemis sighed and looked around the room at the rolls of cloth, yarn, skins, the decorative ropes, leaves, banners. She felt like she was standing in the middle of a decorated, decorating explosion. Artemis had become a very busy person. Her days were filled with decisions, it seems, only she could make. Added to that was directing her staff, which constantly seemed to keep growing. To top it off, there were, uh, there were, sorry, put that back. There were prayers and sermons to direct, workmen to oversee, and most importantly, the needy to help. Such beautiful colors, Sister Artemis. Came a voice from the doorway behind her. Artemis turned, smiling. Thank you, Miasha. I think there'll be wonderful curtains for the infirmary. Miasha's tall frame nearly filled the doorway. Standing at nearly seven feet tall, she was the tallest female human Artemis had ever met. Her body was well-muscled and tanned, and it surprised uh, people to find out how quiet and gentle she was. Uh, her Amazonian figure was quite imposing. Miasha had become indispensable to Artemis, quickly becoming her assistant. Miasha did her best to handle as much of the menial work for Artemis as possible. So Miasha is a very important character. She's kind of become Artemis's right hand, and she's also a high-level cleric of her own. I have a picture for you of Miasha. 
Miyasha is played by the ungodly talented Allison Janney, who herself is known for being a little tall. But I just like her stern, how stern she can be, and then she can just flip-flop into such a comedic, soft-spoken role. I, I, I'm in love with Allison Janney. She's phenomenal. But that is Miyasha, uh, except she's definitely much taller than normal Miyasha, normal Allison Janney. Um, here we go. You asked me to remind you when it was close to midday, she said to Artemis. Thank you, Artemis replied. I've been looking for this break all week. The two women walked down the hall towards the cathedral. The sounds of workmen could be heard, but she was suppo- supposed to... Oh, no. oh but, but in all directions. Most of the personal quarters had already been completed. Artemis had been, Artemis's had been done first. Not that she wanted that, but everybody determined, like the followers, the people, all the people in the town, she being the head cleric, her rooms need to be finished first. She wasn't given a lot of say in that. Which... Lucas being head of security, which he is. Lucas is the head of the Templars here. If you remember, Lucas is an older gentleman who's been with the Temple for a very long time. Uh, He very, very quickly is the one person who will step in and be like, no, we're going to do it this way instead. Uh, Never anything major or religious, but on the basic stuff, he kind of takes the forefront, which sometimes frustrates Artemis, but she knows he does, everything he does is genuinely for the best and for her protection as well as everyone else. So rarely have they ever had any words. May I ask a question, Sister Artemis, asked Miyasha. Of course, Artemis replied. You know you may ask me anything, and please, just call me Artemis, she says that a lot. Miyasha nods and says, well, I'm just... Are you sure it was wise to put Kelvin in charge of the Spring Festival? She's wringing her hand very nervously, like she feels bad for asking, but she has genuine concern. Artemis stifled the laugh that almost popped out. Yes, I'm sure. He's a very capable man, and to be honest, this really is his kind of event. Just then, Kelvin came running up the hall towards them. Again, Artemis had to fight back the laughter, seeing Miyasha roll her eyes at his approach. Sister Artemis! Sister Miyasha! Look here! Kelvin exclaimed as he slid to a stop before them. Look at my tomatoes! Aren't they the best tomatoes ever? They're the first things to ripen from my garden. My zucchini is almost ready, too. Soon I'll have a bunch of tasty things for you all to try. Artemis smiled down at the little man before her. As a cleric of Malachi, goddess of the harvest, Kelvin's robes changed to match the colors of the harvest and the changing seasons. Currently, they were a light green. Unlike other kender, he preferred to wear his hair long with a small ponytail over the length. So Kelvin is a kender cleric of goddess of harvest. Um, harvest and celebration. So one. He's, he's no slouch. He's a pretty high-level cleric himself. Not quite Artemis level, but he, uh, he's up there. And he, while doesn't have official duties here, he's very, very benchful. And, and at first, people would be nervous. Oh, my God, a kender cleric. But with his specialties, harvest and nature, the ability to help plants grow, seasonal things, he has, his magic is based on that. So if a farmstead's having a problem with the ground not growing, he can go up there and cast spells that can help that. So he became very beneficial uh, to, the na- to the neighboring towns and areas as they've been rebuilding their farms and fighting the blight that was cursing it earlier on. I have a picture of Kelvin. I should throw that out there. Kelvin. There he is. I can't remember that actor's name, but I've seen him in a few things and I really liked him. And he kind of has, to me, what would be that tender look. Probably not the facial hair. Maybe the facial hair. But definitely longer hair. Those are beautiful, Kelvin, Artemis replied. I can't wait to taste them. I saw your garden yesterday, and it looks wonderful. 
It truly had been a sight to behold. Many of the locals were nervous at first to having a kinder cleric nearby, but after seeing the effects he could have on their crops, he quickly became a local hero. His abilities with plants were unequaled. Well, I'm off to arrange some more food for the festival. Bye! And with that, Kevin was off again as quickly as he arrived. With a smile, the two women walked on. So that was me introducing a couple of the different characters we're going to be seeing as we move forward. Because the Temple and the Kingdom of Serenity is going to have a whole lot of names and faces pop up over the next while as this continues to grow. Um, so now we jump back to Mercy. Mercy stabled the meat and made her way to the temple entrance. She arrived just as Artemis was coming out, a basket of food in her hands. The two embraced and then set out on their picnic. They decided to go into the woods along the lake. There was a quiet little cove about a 20-minute walk away that they liked to visit. On the way, they talked about current events and the uh, statuses of the construction. Mercy spent a lot of time in the neighboring towns. Her and her knights had quickly become a source of protection in the area, and they did their best to be available if needed. She caught Artemis up on what had been happening in the area. Things have been very quiet lately, and life is very good. So, they're kind of out on their own, just the two of them. Normally, Lucas would never allow Artemis to travel outside of the castle, uh, or outside the temple, without himself or several other uh, Templars with her. The one exception is when she's with Mercy, because Mercy's skill at defending her is probably better than his. So uh, that's the one time he doesn't make a, a stink about it. But whenever she's gone, there are always several Templars and such armed and ready to go at any given moment. Should a notice or signal or something be given, uh, they're ready to ride out. So as soon as she leaves, there's literally like six of them standing there armored, ready to roll out. Only happens once a week, though. Uh, let me see here. At the cove, they enjoyed a wonderful, wonderfully prepared meal, complete with Kelvin's first tomatoes. After about an hour of relaxing conversation, they decided to head back, packing everything up as they begin the long walk back to the temple. It's only about eight to ten minutes on the way back, halfway there, uh, when Mercy quickly draws her morning star by willing it to her hand. If you remember, she has the ring that just lets it pour into her hand. Cursing herself for not always carrying better gear. Artemis was just about to ask what was wrong when they came out of the forest. So Mercy saw, felt, uh, picked up on them coming before Artemis did. There were two of them, both clad all in black. Each was wielding two swords, their faces masked. They were identical, and they were very familiar. It had been nearly two year, year and a half, two years since they'd fought men just like this in the Battle of Moonbrook, and these men were very deadly. So, if we'll remember back when they were saving the kidnapped people and where they first met Seamus, there were two what we called elites there. That's what they're known as, elites, nothing else. They don't speak, they don't say anything, but they're always found in pairs. They're always wielding two long swords plus one, and they're, it's almost like they're trained together. They're, their moves are so well in sync and complement each other. So they're a very dangerous group. Um, you never see them in odd numbers. So two of them come out of the woods to attack. This is the first time that these guys have had any issues with any of these folks since Moonbrook. None of them have been seen. None of the people that were in here kidnapping people or anything. So it's kind of a surprise out of nowhere. Mercy's only wearing her light leathers. She's not well armored. But again, her ability to summon her morning star to her hand at any given time means she's never unarmed. Now, Artemis, of course... She's carrying most anything she needs, and that's her. She's got her magic that she would always have. So right off the bat, she's immediately able to cast some spells. So while it is a relatively quick fight, 
And had they gotten a bit more of the jump on him, they may have actually snagged them more. But Mercy's cautiousness and always being aware of the situation. Uh, they did have a short fight. There was only a little bit of injury to Mercy, but Mercy was able to do quite a bit of damage very quickly. Because um, nobody expects you to throw a Morning Star. Um, and that's something that Mercy had wanted to try to learn to do. It's something that's not really a skill you're going to find in the, in the player's handbooks and such. Um, and so throwing a Morning Star is something that she wanted to dedicate time to doing. So in doing that, I made her sacrifice something else she would gain while leveling. So she's going to focus her attention trying to learn to do a different skill. That means she doesn't have time to do something else. I don't care to do those type of things when I'm running the game. If there's something you really want to do that's not normal or doesn't normally come with your class, I'm like, okay, but if you're going to dedicate time to that, that means you're losing time somewhere else. If there's going to be some kind of a trade-off equal or I'm going to make you give up something even better to give you something you really want. Um, and so... She can throw her Morning Star at the one time at the beginning of combat. Most people don't know that. Because she can instantly summon it back to her hand, it's worth for her to do that. She's not really losing her weapon. But nobody expects to someone to whip a Morning Star at them so that she gets a little bit of a surprise roll on that as well. Um, so she gets one early hit if there's distance and she's not surprised. But of course, they are able to be successful. Two of them, Mercy... Might be a little hard pent to take two of these guys herself, but Artemis with not only her healing spells, this hold person, sleep spell, things that she's got were very, very effective, and they're able to take them out pretty quickly. Now, one thing about them is they don't wear any magical gear or armor, per se. Um, it's mostly something like black cloth leather, so it's just a little protection, but they're just so dexterous and they're so quick that they have a very low armor class at making them hard to hit. Okay. So after they're done, they quickly search the bodies. Um, other than the swords they carry, they have absolutely nothing on them other than their clothing. There's not a coin, not a piece of food, there's no backpack. If they do have any gear, it's probably hidden somewhere. Uh, they quickly, of course, head back to the temple at this point. Artemis, literally like, oh, Christ, Lucas is never going to let me leave again. <laughs> Which is something she actually says. She goes, oh, he's never going to let me leave. Um, as soon as they, they don't run into any more trouble on the way back, and of course, as soon as they get back, they let Art Lucas know, and he just flips his lid. He immediately starts calling Templars. They just start scouring, sending people out to search the woods, um, sending message over to Mercy's people as well, with Mercy's approval, of course, to get her guards and knights that help protect the area, because she's got way more men at arms than uh, Artemis does. Templars, there's not as many of them, um, but the Templars are a little bit better in combat than the majority of her men at arms. So Mercy, people come up, show up, and be like, hey... I'm looking for work. I'm not really, you know, I've never really worked menial. I've been a mercenary or I've been a, a city guard. Okay, cool. How would you can join my military? And she hires them as guards and such to whether guard the construction sites so nothing gets stolen or damaged, guard the keep. Many of them are lower level people that she pays to be there, um, but she attracts them based on her notoriety and, and how positive of uh, an experience she gives the people around her. Uh, Lucas, of course. Flowing, sending people off the lid. And Mercy's upset as well, so she understands this thing. But Artemis, uh, he's immediately he's like, do I need to get you healing? Were you injured? And she's like, I'm a healer, dude. I, I took care of that. I'm, I'm good. I promise. Um, but they're all out over the whole afternoon searching the woods. There's no signs of anything. No horses. No tracks. These guys are sneaky. They don't find anything at all that would lead that there's more of them here, or if they are, they're very well hidden. But both Lucas and Mercy have doubled the guard in the area. People are aware. Especially at night, there's probably triple the guard at this point. Um, 
just to be careful. And Mercy, uh, per Lucas's request, does lend her additional men-at-arms to guide the temple. Um, which Artemis thinks is a little overreactive, but Lucas doesn't care and he does it anyways. Um, as it's getting later in the evening, the two women are still kind of hanging out. Like, Mercy's still at the temple because she's able to run anything from where she is. She spends days at a time away from Serenity dealing with the local villages or there's some wolves messing with these people. Go take care of the wolves. Some goblins were seen messing over. They go mess with the goblins. So she constantly on the run and she comes back a day or two of the week, checks in, see how things are, if there's anything else that needs to happen. But she's constantly on the run with her knights, keeping things cool. And just visiting the villages. Are things good? Building a relationship with them. Um, maybe somebody's coming from the village with their cart of goods. She'll escort them from town to town or to Serenity in, in order to make sure that not only they're probably safe anyways, but to build that rapport. Um, it's later in that evening when a uh, messenger boy, young lad, shows up at the temple. Um, says that he has a message for both Mercy and Artemis. Lucas brings him in, but he's standing there, of course, watching. And the young says that there are two men at the Iron Steed Inn asking for them. And asking that they come there immediately. So, two men. This is another pair of gentlemen. He says, what do they look like? And he's like, I, I don't know. They, I was just told to come here by the owner of the inn and give you this message. He said, hurry, two men really were uh, asking questions about you. Well, Mercy, of course, immediately... Like, I'm gone. And Artemis is like, I'm going too. And Lucas is like, hell, you are. And she turns to him in a very, she goes, I'm going to deal with this. If you want to come along, that's fine. But do you want to physically keep me from going to this place? And Lucas says back and he's like, all right, okay, we cool. Rarely does she stand up to him. And he's like, I understand this is important. So both he and several of the other guards are going as well. And they mount up on horses because it's a little distance, but they, they bumble along. They show up at the inn. And as they arrive, they open up the door and enter the inn cautiously. Because again, there could be two more elites in here. The room is full of workmen and the smell of pork hangs in the air. Good meal. This is a place a lot of people come for the dinner at night. Um, everyone waves and greets everybody. Because of course, Mercy and Artemis know everybody here. Um, immediately you see the two men in question sitting at a table in the corner. And you breathe a sigh of relief when Tobias stands up to greet you. So it's their good friend Tobias, the wizard from Paxiwal. Tobias is a good lad. Oh, has been he's a grown man now. He was... 16, 17 when all this started. Now he's in his early 20s. And he's become quite the mage in his own right. Um, being an apprentice to uh, Lamia, who was one of the head mages there, um, he very quickly jumped the ranks and skill-wise he's had a natural talent for it. They in he introduces the other young man, his own apprentice, a young man named Edwin, um, who's 16 years old. So Tobias now at this point, he's no longer an apprentice to Lamia. He is like a partner, he works with her a lot, um, but he's graduated to having his own apprentice at this point. Um, they say hello, they say how are you doing, so on and so forth. They haven't seen him. Oh. Thank you, Sidlow, for the follow. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming by. <laughs> um, but they, uh, they haven't seen him since all this really kind of started. Uh, sleeping very tired. All right, Oxbox, you have yourself a good evening. If you want to hear the rest of this, it'll be up tomorrow or as soon as this ends, and I'll have it up on Spotify and iTunes tomorrow night as well. Hope you have yourself a good evening. Um, but they haven't seen him in a while, and even though he's clearly happy to see them, he also has a look of very concern on his face, so they make the hellos very, very quick. I bring sad tidings, my friends. There's great trouble in the southern kingdoms. King, Geralt, or sorry, King Gerald of Thorman has been assassinated. Now, if you remember, King Gerald is the one, Thorman, that's the city that the undead were coming at. They went there and helped out. There was an assassination attempt on his daughter. They jumped in and saved it. You may remember that from earlier adventures. 
uh, the P PCs are the characters are like, oh my god, really? Do we know who did it? And he's like, no. And he interrupts and goes, please, friends, I'm afraid there's more. Several attempts were made on council members of Paxwall as well. Felix Rumblebellows, head of the Merchants Guild, was seriously injured. But worst of it all, it's a great, great concern, he goes, Father Bartholomew and Sister Mara have both been poisoned. So Artemis and Mercy are like, poisoned? Well, that's horrible, but they're clerics. And he's like, they've tried. They've tried everything that they can. But no magic spell seems to be eliminating the poison. No cure, no medicines that we have. In fact, any magic spell they cast seems to only make the, 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 the effects of the poison worse. Um, so they were poisoned four days ago and have been, almost, been in a coma almost ever since. Uh, no one and nothing they found have been able to heal them. Uh, Brother Lycos, the only remaining head cleric conscious, who wasn't affected, he wasn't with them, um, is requesting that all capable and ranked healers um, come to the temple as quickly as possible. They're going to try some seriously powerful multi-group spells to try to heal us, and he needs all the powerful healers he can. Uh, Lady Artemis, with her rank and abilities, falls within that classification. Lycos sent Tobias for Artemis, asking that she come immediately. Um... And she's like, and she's like, of course. I mean, definitely. Even Lucas is like, well, no, we understand this. He was in that temple for 20, 25 years. He's like, of course. Well, I'll prepare a group immediately. We'll get to the temple. And, and, and Tobias is like, that's not going to work. You've got several days. There's a road, road now that you've built leading to the temple. But even then, it's going to take you a couple days, a day or so, to get to the, to the portal, the realm gate. Then port to Paxhole. And then it's days, if not a week or so, travel. We don't have that kind of time. He says, um, he asks Mercy and Artemis straight there. He goes, do you both still have the rings of teleportation that, Lim that Lady Lamia gave you? And they said, yes, they're wearing them. They, or they, they're not wearing them. They have them in their homes. They don't wear them all the time. They have the, those were rings that allowed them to teleport to their old house in Paxable. He's like, I think it'd be best that you use those. It's the quickest way there. I'll come following immediately. I'll hurry and do my best to get there. I'll come back through the portal. I don't have a teleport. He was teleported here from the Wizard's Tower, but it's not a spell he has. Somebody else teleported him here. He goes, I'll come back as quickly as I can. Uh, but that's the, the fastest route. And with both of you, while well, well, looking at Lucas, I understand that you don't want, I'm sure, her to go alone. She'll be with Mercy, and it's of the essence. No one else knows they have that ability. No one will be expecting her to just appear there instantly. So anyone watching for her to be coming will be watching for her coming for down the road from the, the portal. This will be actually better in the long run. And Lucas can't disagree with that. Um, they say definitely they'll make arrangements. They'll leave in the morning because they went through a lot today. Artemis, she's, she's going to need to study her spells and be prepared to cast tomorrow. And they need to get some rest. And there are some things they're going to have to set up. I'm going to be gone. You do this. You're in charge of this. That kind of a thing. Um, and so they're, they they wish to buy us well. They're like, we're going to have to rush out. We'll see you again in the morning. They've already got a room in this in the inn. They're going to stay there. Him and Edwin. So Mercy is taken back to the... Uh, runs back to her place. And Artemis is taken back to the temple with Lucas and them. And while, he, while she's gone... Uh, Artemis basically puts leadership in the hands of f half of Lucas and half Miasha. Uh, Miasha runs the temple side of it. Luca Lucas runs the militant side of it. Um, they work well together. They're basically her left and right hand. That's how it works anyways. Um, but for any major decision at this point, as long as it will not affect the security of the temple, Miasha is, is, is the one step above. She will make any major decisions in the long run. Um, 
It's the same with uh, Mercy. She, of course, puts... Everyone knows when she's not there, Ulrich's in charge. Um, Ulrich is just... He's, he was growing then. He's full size now, and he's pretty buffed up. Um, and he's just very armorlike, and he's totally the guy you trust for these type of things. Uh, so again, they're like, should we be coming with you? Should this be going on? So on and so forth. And there's a discussion of who should be going. Uh, bear with me just a moment. All right. Let me grab this here. Now, let's see. Right. Now, of course, Ulrich doesn't have a ring, so he can't go. But the one thing that they do uh, plan to do before they go is they're going to pop into the house where Molly is. Hopefully they won't scare the heck out of her. Um, the other thing, big thing they wanted to do, and that's what I was looking up here, is remember they have those crystal orbs. They're going to try to reach out to Dandy and Darsh as well. Now, there's no way to... It, it's not like a phone. It doesn't ring. But they can do a summon on the globe, on their little orb, to try to summon them, but... Until they see the orb or check or whatever the case is, no one's going to know they're trying to reach them. And that's why there's a specific day every month they know this is the day we get our ball out, put on a little stand, and we have a conversation. But they're going to try to reach out. Um, there we go. So they go ahead and they do that as quickly as they can. Uh, they get prepped, ready to go. And then the next morning, uh, after speaking with Tobias and letting him know that they'll meet them there, um, wishing goodbye to everybody, they use their rings to teleport back. It's instantaneous, of course, and they reappear in the familiar darkness of the basement. Um, it's not as trapped as it was, because they knew if they ever had to port here to meet Dandy or Darsh, they're not going to be able to get out of Dandy's trap, so Dandy does not have the room trapped any longer. Um, but it's been a while since they used their rings to teleport to Paxable, but the feeling is familiar. First you're standing on the Temple of Serenity, and then suddenly you're standing in complete darkness. Um, now, in the basement home, there's a key that they can unlock from the inside to get out. And that's the thing, it locks from inside or out, one of those things. Um, but inside, there's a string they can ring that basically pulls on it will ring a bell in the house, just kind of like a door-opening bell. And when they ring that, that lets Molly know somebody's there because if there's people in the house, remember, she's got a business, she sells pies, she needs to get them out of there. Uh, there's also a little peephole that they made that they can look out through pictures eyeballs, which was a dandy thing. Uh, looking through the spy hole after they ring the bell, um, they quickly see... Um, Molly ushering people out the door. The familiar smell of fresh-baked pie hangs in the air. Once Molly is alone, they open the secret door and step out in the living room. Why, hello there, says Molly. I'm so glad to see you. It's been a year. They've not been back at that point. Um, they say hi, see what's going on. Um, she says those were people that were here customers. They were picking up some pies. I told them it's going to be a little while. Come back in an hour. Uh, so they, they left for that. Um, Pie business has been doing well. This house is nice. So she's actually living pretty comfortably. Um, she's very sad to hear about the kingdom of Thorman, but it is the assassination is well known. It only happened about a week ago, uh, but very quickly that news spread. Uh, no one knows who did it. Um, the king was found dead with a knife in his heart in the morning. Um, and at this point, there are some suspicions. We'll talk about those a little later. Uh, they say that the rooms are still here if you need them, but both Murphy, Mercy and Artemis is like, we'll stay at the temple. We're not going to set you out in any way. And they're like, well, we, we can't stay. We'll be back and let you know, you know what's going on, but we have to get to the temple as quickly as possible. Every moment could matter. Good. So they leave quickly. And while it's been months since they were in Paxiwal, they've lived there so long that they know its layout by heart and move quickly through the streets towards the temple. Uh, they arrive and are quickly taken to the cathedral. A few moments later, Brother Lycos arrives. His features look sunken like he has not slept in days. Sister Artemis, he says, embracing her, I'm so glad you've come. He tells the story of basically what happened. 
Both Brother Bart and Sister Mara were on their way to a council meeting, which is not in the temple, and were going through the marketplace, which was exceptional. It's very busy. It's been a good, good year, um, but there's also a lot of people selling goods and such because of the Thorman thing. They don't know when they're going to get to Thorman. There's a little bit of uh, people freaking out from that. Um, they had a bunch of Templars with them, and they were just moving through the streets. The crowds seemed to be parting and such, and then suddenly both of them cried out and fell over. Uh, the temp Templars immediately rushed them back to the temple. Uh, they've been in a coma almost instantly since. Um, there's a small wound on each of them that we're able to find. Uh, both of them literally on, on their arms. So what or whoever did it did some type of a spike or needle or cut or something of that nature, but it's very small. Um, they are able to verify that it's poison, but it's unlike any type of poison that anyone has ever found in the temple. They got no records of it. No healers come across it. Um, the way that it affects is crazy. Um, they've attempted every type of healing spell that a single cleric could do, but nothing has worked. Um, they want to attempt a, basically what's a large multi-heal spell, which is very powerful, but it requires multiple high-level clerics. Um, Artemis was needed for that spell. Um, uh, she was, he was also supposed to be going to the council meeting, but at the last minute, an issue had come up that made him stay behind, and so they were going to go in. His, they went in his stead. Um, so he ended up. If he'd gone, the concern is it could have been all three of them. And if all three of them had been down, the temple would have been in serious issues. Um, they basically get their information. They're like, "We're going to be casting the spell later this evening." Several other clerics have come in. Several have come from our, are on their way from Arjuel now. We're going to give it a day or two until everybody shows up because nobody gets there as fast as Artemis and them. Uh, it took more, took more time for Tobias to get to them than it did for them to get back. Uh, but it was four days ago, remember. So people are coming quickly from Arjuel. They've also reached out to the, uh, the mages. Uh, and the mages have come in, uh, both Lamia and them have come in and have tried to see if they, if it's something magical wizard-wise. But none of their spells have given them anything. And right now Lamia uh, is working on... Uh, at the Mage's Tower, having everybody... Because they work well with the temple, and if they can get poisoned, no mage wants that either. So they're basically... Everybody at the tower is working, going through books, going through spells, see what they can find to, to see if they can heal them. They're given rooms. They say, it's going to be a couple days. We're giving as many clerics a chance to get here as we can, though we can't wait much longer because I don't know how long they're going to make it. Um, so they're given rooms, and of course, they brought the crystal balls with them. They each have one. Well, very often, Mercy and Artemis will just share one and or be at one place having a conversation, but they brought them both this time, um, and they're both going to be trying to contact Darsh and Dandy. Um, she does ask, when was the last time Darsh had been to port? Um, he says, I don't know specifically. He was here a week or so ago, but I did check knowing you'd be coming. Um, neither him nor your friend, the Kender, neither of their ships have been in port in at least the week. Uh, Dandy's hasn't been seen in months. Um, let's see. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Okay, so it's several days later. Mercy and Artemis, been basically, Artemis has been spending a lot of time with Legos. Mercy's just kind of had her own space. She's been back to visit Molly a couple times, but she doesn't go far. She spends most of her time at the, near the Crystal Ball watching, hoping that somebody notices it. Because again, it doesn't ring. It's not the greatest thing for communication, but it works. Finally, some more clerics show up, both from Thorman and Arduel. Um, they were hoping that the... The clerics from Firemoon would make it, but unfortunately they're just further away. And Lyco says, at this point, I think we need to go ahead and try to cast the spell. We have a lot of powerful clerics here, a lot of high rank. I'm afraid of leaving it much longer. They're, they're, they're continuing to get worse. So they go in and Artemis is there for basically, she's gone for like 12 hours. It's a very intensive spell, takes a long time, and Mercy's just kind of hanging out in her room, 
fidgeting because Mercy is not a person to sit on her butt. She's a person of action. She's to get up, and this is a, this is a fight she can't win. She can't even get involved in it. Um, rarely is there, are they in a situation where it's so magical that Mercy just has to sit there and wait for Artemis to do anything. It's usually the other way around. Um, so she's just stewing, but she can't leave in case Darsh or Dandy reaches out to her. Uh, Artemis returns a little bit later that evening with very bad news. All through the day and in part of the night, uh, they combined gathering of clerics. Uh, the combined gathering of clerics had attempted to heal the poison in Father Bart and Sister Mara, but sadly they were unsuccessful. Tired and defeated, Artemis and the other clerics returned to their rooms to rest, so that they could try to rest up and try again the next day. Um, at the same time, letting them know what progress they've made. That the more powerful the spell, the worse they seem to get. Um, so. They're giving some space between trying again to see if they're, the people feel... You know, visually, their, their life signs get a little bit better. Um, but at this point, Artemis is concerned. She goes, that's pretty much one of the most powerful spells we've got access to here. I mean, it would take a high priest or a king priest to cast anything higher. And there just isn't one in this area. They're rare that somebody gets that high in power. Um, because you're basically a chosen of the god as well to get to such of a rank. Artemis never had any desire to do for that. She just always wanted to serve the best she could. But that's still well beyond her means. Um, everybody's trying to, like I said, figure out what's going on, see if they can do more research. Um, they've checked in the library. Uh, they've done everything from fables of oracles, healing miracles. Look, the problem that they run into is a lot of the books are like, yes, there was a special healing oracle that lived here, they didn't come through Merge World. There was a, a stone of great magic. If you visited it, that didn't come through Merge World. So a lot of the history that they're reading doesn't help because that's just not part of this new world. And there's no record that anyone can find of this kind of poison um, at all. Let's see. Um, the next day, Brother Lycos gathers the clerics up. Mercy's allowed to, to come as well. And she says, he goes, at this point, I honestly don't know what to do next. The poison, he goes, definitely from what we've found, the poison is magical in nature. It's not just a regular poison. But somehow it's blocking and even absorbing the magic they're casting on it and maybe in, in, and turning that into basically what, they, what he believes is causing the poison to spread faster. He goes, his concern is that at this point they need to try to find some kind of non-magical antidote. But there's been no, they, can't, they haven't found anything of that nature. So... Mercy and Artemis decide they're going to go and they're going to check with Lamia. Lucas Lycos was going to send somebody anyways, but they're like, we'll go over there, we've got a good relationship with her, see if they've come up with anything. Um, so they go to there, and again, once it's known who they are, they send a message in, they're brought in to see Lamia. Um, Tobias has already returned, and when they show up, both of them are dressed like they're going to travel somewhere. Okay? So that's just a thing to be aware of. Look like they're going to travel somewhere. Um, Lamia says that with the information they've received, and she's been there to cast some spells herself, um, at this point, they also have no idea what's going to cure it. They have no record of what this poison is, and they're not sure what's going on. Um, they've reached out to the herbalists in the area. They've reached out to pretty much anybody you can think of. And no one has ever heard of any type of poison of this nature. So, Lamia says that her and Tobias had planned to go on a... And, and they look at each other for a minute like they're struggling for a word. Expedition? 
um, a magical surge, if you will, even before this incident happened. But the current need has pushed us to move even quicker. Um, we have a, and again, they're looking at each other. They're trying, uh, like they're trying to say without saying too much. We have a possible avenue where we might be able to find the answer. I don't know for sure. Um, it's a gamble. He goes, but the spell that we're casting, she goes, I'm going to be honest, it's quite dangerous. There is the chance that we may not return. As harsh as that sounds, she goes, we're casting a spell that we've basically created, the two of us, it's going to take both of us to cast it. If all goes well, we should be fine. But like any magic spell, until you've tested it, you don't know if it's really working the way it's supposed to. Um, Hello, Teresa. Hey, hey. And they're like, so Mercy and, and Artemis, like, are you sure it's, I mean, I understand how important it is, but that sounds pretty dangerous. And they're like, well, we were going to do it anyways. We've been working on this for a long time. This just pushes the need more. We really can't go into the details much, especially with the concern of people poisoning people. We don't want to give too much information that not only are they down, we're keeping it hushed that we're leaving. We don't want people to know Lamia and Tobias are leaving because Lamia's at this point, second in command of basically the mage tower of Paxilol. Not the head. She's just the one that she they, they deal with the most. Um, and Tobias at this point being pretty high ranked as well. Kind of thing. They're, they're going to be leaving. They don't want people to know that powerful mages are gone while all this is going on. Uh, Elmo Dad. Hey, brother. Been a week or so. Some people stop by. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thank you very much. Feeling adequate. <laughs> uh, just doing some D&D story and having a good evening. So overall, I'm feeling okay. My next big doctor's appointment is Wednesday. I'll have a little bit better idea of what the next month is going to look like once we go in there and have x-rays and ultrasounds and such. But thank you for stopping by and checking on me. I appreciate it. Um... Looking low, better. Well, thank you. I'm definitely not in anywhere near as much pain as I was before. Now it's just mostly discomfort and ache. Uh, but thanks for checking. <laughs> so, Lamia says, we'll be leaving later today. We're not going to tell you where we're going, where we're leaving. We just can't at this point. There are, and again, they see, she seems like she's struggling for the right words. She goes, there are rules about this that we're being very careful to follow. Else we bring the ire of something very powerful down upon us. Um, but they say, if we can find anything, we will reach out to you as quickly as we can. Um, let's see here. Where else they got? Um, give me one second. I've got several different locations here. Now, the one thing that she does recommend is she say that there is a gnome um, named Cherub Mellowind who has an herbalist shop in town. Um She's been not feeling well, and we've not been able to reach her, but she's very, very experienced. Um, you may want to check in there, see if she's feeling where you can get it. Her family really won't let anybody in right now because she's not feeling well. Um, nothing magical or funky. She's just sick, um, and she's been trying to get some rest herself. She's very old for a gnome, but she has a lot of knowledge. You may want to check with her. Uh, the Leaves and Petals Herbalist Shop. And so Artemis and Mercy thank Lamia and Tobias, wish them well on their spell slash trip, and say, we'll head to the Leaves and Petals. <clears throat> Um, so they make their way there, and Sherb is feeling it better. The store is actually open, even though it's her daughter that's really running it today. She does say that her, her mother's feeling a bit better and is willing to speak with them, especially when they hear they're being sent from Lamia, and Artemis being who she is, they know Artemis and Mercy. They're still relatively famous in this area, and everyone knows how much money Paxwall's making, because they're paying a lot of money to have Paxwall building people go to this portal and build all of Serenity. So there's a big amount of money in businesses that are working on that. <clears throat> um, they had heard of the attack on 
the mages, but did not know really what... They didn't hear much. That's been kept kind of hush. Everyone knows that there's something wrong and they've been poisoned, but no one has any real details about that. Um, when they talk to Cherub about it, and they say, describe the poison, Cherub says, I've actually heard of something kind of like that. I think, oh, it's been so long. Give me a moment. And she shuffles back into a room, and now they're getting all nervous and antsy because they don't know what's going on. And she comes up with a book almost as big as her. She's a little gnome, remember. She's got this big, big book, and her daughter helps her lift it up on the counter, and she climbs up on a, sta- on a, on a little ladder and starts flipping through these pages that look like they're barely being held together. Very, very old book. And when she, she gets to kind of around the middle, she stops, she starts reading, and Artemis and Mercy are looking, but it's a language they don't understand. And she goes, yes, yes, here it is, here. Void root, void root. It's a black root. And she goes, it sounds kind of like it is. It's a, very, it's a plant that's very, very rare, immune to magic of all kind. In fact, magic seems to have a detrimental effect by causing it to spread even in nature. Um, if it's in a body, it'll slowly kill the body by poisoning the magic. So if you use it on you know, Farmer Bob, who has no real magic in him, it just might make him ill for a few days. But the more powerful someone is in magic, the more magic they're instilled with, the more the poison eats away and hurts you. So the more powerful you are, the more damage it can do. Someone in the ranks of Artemis or higher, it would eventually kill them. She goes, is from the, she goes I, I recognize it from the, the world that she came from, whichever it was. She also says, according to this book, there's no known antidote. Um, she goes, now that being said, I've been you know, researching since merge, the merge happened, and I've come collecting old tomes and such. And she's got a little bit of money on her. She's been researching herself. And she goes, she had come across an elf uh, probably six to eight months ago who was very, very ill, and so was his daughter. And they came in here, and nothing they had would work, and she was able to find a combination of medicines that were able to help. He was very happy and spoke very openly to them. And, and while they were talking, mentioned that had he wished he was closer to the, uh, the, the he could get back to the elven kingdom of his home he goes because there he's sure there'd be a cure there of course he probably wouldn't have access to it as it's for the it's it's usually not given to commoners Cherub was very was very interested she goes what type of cure are you talking about he goes told her that there's a plant that's rumored to grow named sovereign's breath and sovereign's breath is incredibly rare like uber rare um, and is rumored only to grow near or on the burial sites of elven kings. So elven kings and queens, it'll only, basically, magic, will only grow on the burial sites of, of a king or queen of an elven kingdom. And the plant only blooms once every moon, and the flower must be halt, uh, harvested then. The flower will then fade and die by the next moon. Um, can only be found in ancient kingdoms, because not all elven kings, doesn't, you stop the planet. But it'll only grow in those situations. Um, but you go, that's, she goes, that, as far as I know, Sovereign's Breath has been found to cure everything. She goes, what research I've done on it, and people heard of it, if it's real, it's the most powerful healing herb that I've ever come across. The problem is, of course, that once you use the petal, the flower from it, the flower dies. So it can only be used once, and once you pull the petals, they have only a very small amount of time before they basically go bad. So you got to pick them, use them, and the plant is dead. You don't get another shot till a new plant grows. She goes, again, this is all rumors and such I found from my research. I found no one who's ever actually seen it. But it's the only thing I've heard of. 
they thank very much for that. They appreciate that. And so they're like, okay. And they're going to head back to the temple. They've got a little bit of time. And Mercy's like, let's go get a drink. Artemis is like, now of all times? And Mercy's like, listen, there's a lot going on here. There's an assassination in Thorman of a man that we considered a friend. There is two more of our friends are in a coma right now. Molly doesn't know what's going on. Maybe we should get a drink somewhere, see if we can get a little bit more information ourselves. We're a little bit well-known around here. We might get some tongues moving. And Artemis is like, Lucas will be furious. And she goes, well, I'm not going to tell him. She, and Artemis smiles, and they start heading towards an inn. So they go to the Inn of Smythe, and Smythe is one of the biggest inns in the area. Um, it's over 200 years old, run by Richard Smythe and his family, been passed down for generations. Um, they go in, they go there first, kind of upstanding, you know, nice place, not real dangerous at all, fancy schmancy. Um, they go in there and they're asking some questions, get a drink or two, they get some good quality drinks, which is nice. Mercy's like, ah, good stuff. They only, they only rarely get the good stuff in Serenity because people there, there's no old wines or beers made yet. Although she's put some thoughts into very seriously trying to hire a brewery, convince someone to move to the area and start a brewery. <laughs> it's, it's very important to her. Um, uh, the Thorman locals are very upset, and the kingdom is right now in a little bit of minor chaos. With the king being assassinated, of course, you can understand that. Um, Paxwall is also nervous. When you have a kingdom that's unsettled next door that's having problems, you've you got to worry that type of stuff may spread. Um, but they spoke with Richard, the owner himself, and Richard's like, you know, I don't have a lot of information here. We're busy. He goes, if you're looking for more rumors and such... Because you may want to try the pug barn in. It's down near the docks. The sailors go through there. You may get a little bit more information. Um, they thank him for his time and they head out. I gave them, when we were doing the story, I gave them a list of places where they may find information that they needed. And I'm like, you have a day to do this. You can visit two of these five. Where do you want to go? And the way I ran it is I had lists of things that they can learn at each place. They had to ask the right question, and if they, got, if they asked a question that pulled up one of those answers, I'd give it to them. I was not set up in a specific way where I was going to give them all the information. They had to ask the right questions to get it. Um, but I like to do it that way. And some of the answers I give are wrong or lies or rumors anyways, because that's what you get in a place, depending on where you're going. But I just don't say, oh, this is what you learn when you get there. You've got to ask the right questions to get it. I want them to role-play their characters. So they go down near the docks and they go into the pub barn. Not the best area of town. They go inside and uh, it's run by a human male named Pug Drevens. It's his place. And um, they walk in and immediately they start getting looked at and leered at by people. Um, but no one even begins to hassle them, mostly because Artemis is there. You know, Mercy, they might have hassled a little bit if they didn't know who she was, but Artemis, no one's going to try to bring the ire of the Temple down on the, this town. The Templars will just come through and wipe out everybody. So the, the Templars make sure that you realize you don't accost a cleric in this city. And they're off-limits for thieves. Even the Thieves' Guild doesn't touch the clerics. Because at that point, the Templars don't screw the city guard. The Templars will deal with it themselves. And even though they're Templars of good, they'll get violent if they need to. But they get there, and they have some drinks, and they, uh, they start chatting with people, and they're role-playing, meeting different people, and they're having to slide some coins out, you know? What do you remember if I slide this gold piece across the table? That kind of thing. And it was a fun role-playing experience, because they had they'd done some of that, but it had been a long time in the, in the previous story. Um, so it gave them a chance, just the two of them, to do that. 
Um, and this is this is I have it's cool because I have the list of what I had and I checkmarked the information they got. So I'll read to you the same information that they got. Um, there are rumors of another great army building far to the west of Thorman. If you remember, there was those rumors before, back around the undead time. Um, there's another rumor that Brother Lycos is actually responsible for Bart and Mara's poisoning because he's trying to take over the temple for himself. Uh, they also got one that several Paxiwal merchant ships have sunk, evidence of possible Minotaur involvement. Uh, the th Queen of Thorman is to take over the kingdom. Uh, the princess is highly pissed because it's her mother-in-law. So the princess, technically be next in line, had the queen not married her father. So there seems to be some internal uh, strife there as to who the official new leader is of Thorman. Um, also, tensions are high right now between Arduel and Santriel. Santriel is the elven kingdom far to the west. Arduel is where King Christopher was. That's their friend. Um, there's also rumors that there are giant alligators that used to be pets living in the sewers. So that's the information that they were able to get at the pug bar and inn. And at the end of that, once there was their two places. They chose the herbalist shop and they chose that place. They go back to the temple to rest. Artemis to see what Lycos may need from her. Mercy to get back to the Globes. All rumors, that's correct. All they're getting is rumors from the sailor's place. But some rumors are true. Some rumors may not be true. And some rumors may be based on a hint of truth. So, you know, the telephone game. By the time it reaches you, how many people has it passed through? Um, and I like to do it that way. None, nothing in there is exactly correct. Nothing in there is exactly a lie. It's just rumors. So they go back to the room for that night. And then we move on to something a little different. The salty mist of the sea fills Darsh's nostrils. His fur and clothes damp with it. The sound of the Morgenstern are all around him. The water hitting the ship, the creak of the wood and the ropes, the conversation of his men, the laughter of people who become friends, even family, over the past year. Darsh thinks fondly of his crew. These men and women have served him well. They fought at his side, battled storms and disasters. They've proven themselves time and time again. Dorham Marshlight, which is Darsh's first mate, stands at his side on the bridge. Dorham was the most trustworthy person Darsh had ever met. He'd become Darsh's right hand, anticipating his needs and keeping his ship in order. He'd become a friend and confidant. Everything's running smoothly, Captain, Dorham says. Darsh nods and looks up into the starry sky. The night's coming over. Very good, Darsh replies. I believe I'm going to call it a night. You have the wheel, Mr. Marshlight. Aye, Captain, Dorham says, accepting control of the ship. Darsh heads to his captain, nodding and speaking with each crewman as he passes. Darsh's crew was incredibly loyal. He treated them fairly, paid them incredibly well, and fought for them and by their sides. He'd earned their respect and admiration time and time again. The ship was several days out of Kronayar on its way back... Um, to Zalshedanar, to one of his islands. The Morgenstern had dropped off a cargo from Arduel, uh, netting Darsh a handsome profit. Darsh enters his cabin and closes the door behind him. Pouring himself a drink, he settles into his favorite chair and begins to look over the blueprints for a new storage facility he was considering building on his island. Coram's hammer, Coram's hammer, squawks Basil in Dwarven. Darsh smiles and gives the bird a cracker, because Darsh wanted a parrot. He wasn't a pirate, but it was very important to Darsh that he has a parrot that said things. Um, and so he ended up getting one from a dwarven uh, captain uh, who was old of age. And so Corm's hammer is the only thing that it can say that's not in dwarven. So Darsh has had to learn a bit of dwarven. Uh, but Corm's hammer, Corm being the god very often of, the, of war, both dwarves 
and Minotaur uh, are big fans. Uh, deciding it had been a long day, Darsh decides to get some sleep. He gathers up a few loose belongings and opens up the drawer beneath his bed. Put away the blueprints. He's just about to close the door again when something catches his eye. A glowing, flashing light. Darsh reaches beneath a couple of items and pulls out his globe of linked projection. Looking inside the bag, he sees the small crystal globe is pulsating with an inner glowing light. In the years since Darsh left his friends to build a life of his own, the globe had never been activated like this except on the same day of the month predetermined by the group of them, when they would all check in with each other. But that night was two weeks away. Something was wrong. Darsh placed the globe on its small wooden stand. It began to glow to its full size, because when you set it down, it, it actually grows. That's one thing I never mentioned. You tap on it, and it's like a small ball like this, and it becomes a crystal ball that you talk through. Um... Let me see. Uh, when it was done, he tapped his finger and said, accept. And then he waited. Um, so, at this point, this is the third night after the failed spell to try to heal um, the, the two clerics that had been poisoned. Um, Mercy, of course, is when they get back from the inn and such, they get back there. They see it's glowing, which means he's answered, and they quickly rush over to it and tap on it. Darsh pops up on the, on the thing, and he's like, okay, what's wrong? And they immediately tell him the situation. Thorman's he he he's been out on the far waters of Kronjar. He hadn't heard about Thorman yet. Um, he's been coming from Arduel, the far e uh, far east side. Um, he says that of course he'll he doesn't know what he can do to help, but he'll start heading that way immediately in case there's anything he can do. Um, he has not seen Dandy in about four and a half months. She swings by his island a couple of times, and they've run into each other at a couple of ports, uh, but they don't meet up that often. And right now he doesn't know where she is. She rarely says. Rarely does she know. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They hunt undead. And so her and Michael have a habit of going place to place based on the needs of that time. Um, of course, he says uh, that he'll come immediately. And um, he wishes them well and says, I'm on my way. We'll get here as quickly as he can. Uh, Darsha's cabin door flies open and he rushes to the stairs that lead up to the bridge. Once there, he immediately commands Dorm to change course to Paxwell and proceed at full speed. Dorm doesn't ask why, and he doesn't need to. He's been given a direct order and without hesitation acts to obey it. Yelling out orders, the crow jumps uh, to action. More crewmen rush from below decks, jumping in to correct their heading. Dorm sends for Gasket to plot a new course and for Marcos of the Winds. Mar By the way, I should mention Marcos is his full-time smage now. He actually found a sea mage that hangs out, that is on a long-term contract. And his, his name is Marcos, Marxos of the Winds is his nickname. Uh, to increase their speed. Dorham knew whatever happened was important and that Darsh would tell him when he needed to. The Morgenstern banked sharply as it turned back towards Paxwell. Darsh stood at the wheel, willing the ship to move faster. He had to get there because his friends needed him. Even at top speed, it's going to take almost seven days for Darsh to get there. Okay? Uh, he was way up in Cron... Uh, way out east of Cronear. He's got a long distance to go, even at full speed, and he can only push his men so hard He's not going to kill them. Um, and they weren't ready. This wasn't something they planned ahead of time. And they're going to be going, you know, they don't have a whole lot of supplies. They were meant to kick in on Kronayar just a day or so later. Now they're having to do a shark bank and probably go half rations, work twice as hard. Um, but six to seven days is approximately what Darsh says. He'll be there as quickly as he can. Um, let's see. Uh, and, of course, they can, every day they're going to tap on the orb to see if there's any new information. They, they work that out. Um, the characters, or the... Mercy continues to look around the city while Artemis spends more time with Lycos and the other clerics trying to find what information they can. Um, and during that time, there is... Um, 
no specific information that they find that benefits them. So they're just basically treading water. Um, let's see. So let me find it. One second. I'll make sure I'm giving the right place. Here we go. All right. So the information after thinking this and talking with Darsh and chatting, the only Artemis and Mercy, they're like we don't have any clues to go on other than maybe this flower petal that might cure him, cure them. Um, and even though they're high clerics of good, which they are, doesn't necessarily mean that elves are going to help them because the only elven kingdom anywhere near here is Santriel, and they are not very welcoming. They want nothing to do with humans. They rarely even let non-Santriel elves in there. Occasionally, but not often. Um, and talking with Darsh, Darsh is like, I stay out of their waters. I just don't go in there. It's just, you know, everybody knows that. I don't need the trouble. I'm not trying to cause a problem, so I stay out of their waters. It's clearly marked. Everybody knows where it is. Um, and with the added tension... In fact, recently they closed their border completely, um, and any attempting to enter the forest or elven waters uh, is rejected. There's even been rumors that, or stories that people trying to get in the forest, loggers, somebody rather, have even been killed. So there's a lot of tension between those two kingdoms right now. Um, so Darsh is like, well, we're, we're never going to make it through the woods because the only thing I can think is we could try to sail in under my ship. I could pick you guys up. We could try to go in, see if we can get... You know, I doubt we'll make it to the shore. Maybe we get a boat, get a message in, tell them what's going on. Clerics of good are in trouble. They may help, they may not. I don't have anything else that I can offer as an idea at this point. Because he checks with his ship, Gasket, the people who know stuff. And nobody there have, has ever heard of any poison of this nature. They've At this point, Darsh has made his whole crew of, aware of what's going on. And his crew are basically good people. The last thing they want are clerics to get killed. And if they can help, A, that's good. B, probably profitable in the long run. These are our merchants. Um... Let's see. Oops, sorry. Um, hmm. There's that. So that's the plan that they decide to take. That they're going to basically hop on Darsh's ship when he arrives. They'll take 24 hours to restock it as quickly as he can. Normally it would take longer than that, but Darsh is going to pay top dollar. And they're going to uh, try to head towards Santriel. Um, he asks a couple of the elves and such that are on his ship, um, what do they know of Santriel? There's only a couple of elves. Uh, the, the only named crew one was Nathaniel, who was his lookout, if you'll remember. Um, and Nathaniel just kind of is like, I, I really don't know anything about it. I, I really can't help you. And they're like, okay, cool. Because again, elves, a lot of the elves are from completely different worlds that Santriel is from, right? So it doesn't mean they'd know anything about it. Um, so, that carries on. So, Darsh is... Heading there, it takes several days, and he's getting relatively close to getting there. And then, this next step happens. Dandy's whole body ached. Whole body ached. Even her top knot hurt, if such a thing was possible. As she slowly brought the flying carpet down onto the deck of the Miss Dandelion, her first mate, Lyman, approached her. Welcome home, Captain, he said, smiling. Were you successful? Her pain was momentarily forgotten as she recounted their most recent adventure. Smiling, Michael climbed off the carpet and began rolling it up. Several other crew members grabbed their gear and carried it to their cabin. And I thought the mummy was going to eat my face right off, explained Dandy. Well, I'm glad to see that it did not, cut in Lyman quickly. Where are we headed next? Lyman has learned that during the story you've got to quickly get in with a question or you're never going to get going forward. 
Well, Michael said we need more bolts and arrows, plus we could use a new gig. Let's head to Paxwell and check in. Aye, Captain, immediately replied Lyman. He immediately began barking out orders and the crew got the ship underway. Dandy smiled, looking over her ship. She loved her boat. Her crew was awesome, too, and Dandy tried her very best to take her job as captain seriously. Uh, Lyman did a great job of taking care of everything. He was the only member of her original crew still with her and Michael. Uh, some had not been able to handle uh, a kender for a captain, and most just found the job too dangerous. Hunting undead was a risky profession, but Michael was very good at it. This sometimes brought the ship and crew into dangerous situations. Over time, the crew was replaced by people with special motivations. Many of the crew had been victimized by undead in their lives. Some had lost everything to them. This small but devoted group of individuals found Michael and Dandy's mission uh, to eradicate living dead, all of them, by the way, uh, close to their own hearts and a way to get back at those who had hurt them. So the whole crew, with the exception of Lyman, who's just loyal to Dandy, uh, hate undead. That's the kind of crew you got. They're, they, they're all about making sure Dandy and Mercy, they come back, yeah, we just slaughtered all these undead. They're like, yeah, where next, you know? Um, uh, seeing that Lyman had everything under, con oh, under control, Dandy excused herself and joined Michael in the cabin. Michael was already unpacking their gear. Dandy closed the door and plopped down on the bed. Wake me in a year, she whimpered. Michael snickered as he hung Menandra and Dandy's hoopack on the wall. I too could use a good sleep. Once I get this stuff put away, I'll join you. Well then, she said with a mischievous smile, I guess I should help so you can get in here sooner. They both laughed and Michael stole a kiss as he walked by. Dandy laid back down and closed her eyes. Life was pretty good. She was a captain of her own ship. Her boyfriend was the best undead hunter ever, and she moved from one adventure to the next. Her thoughts drifted to her friends, as they always do. She hadn't seen Artemis or Mercy in a year. She got to chat with them once a month on her orb, but she missed them dearly. Darcy did get to see very rarely, though it had been a few, or occasionally, but it had been a few months. Whenever possible, the Miss Dandelion made birth at uh, Zelshad Amir is the name of Darsh's uh, primary island. I don't remember why he named it that, um, but I always refer to it as Darshtopia, just because she hated me doing that, so I started calling it Darshtopia. Uh, that's what his islands are called to me. So if I say Darshtopia, I'm talking about his four islands, because uh, Zelshad Amir just gets hard to remember. Um, let me see. Maybe after they visited Paxwell, they'd go see him again. Dandelion, Michael said. Dandy was standing immediately, dagger in hand. She knew that tone of voice, and it meant trouble. Over the past year, the two of them had grown incredibly close. They knew each other, and they knew and, and, and how they thought. It had saved their lives many times. So the way he said Dandelion, she immediately knows something's wrong. She's standing up with a dagger in her hand that nobody would know she would have. Because just that's how Dandy is. Michael was standing before the small chest where they kept important items. She followed his gaze to the chest where she saw the velvet bag holding her orb, a soft, pulsating glow coming from it. But we're not supposed to talk for another week, Dandy whispered. She ran to the chest and grabbed the bag. Pulling out the orb and placing it on its stand, it grew to full size. Except, Dandy said, tapping her finger to its surface. Now she had to wait. Dandy hates waiting. So sure enough, soon after that... Oh, what's it here? Uh, Zach, I'm going to tell my mom this is an audiobook and skip reading. <laughs> All right. I'll take that. Technically, it is, if I can ever get it written right. <laughs> um, so Danny, of course, again, just like Darsh, it's blinking when it's not supposed to be. That means something's wrong. But is it Darsh? Or is it one of the ladies calling? 
she doesn't know. So she hits it. Um, it's not long, because again, they got home, it was getting close to evening, before Dandy finally sees um, both Artemis and Mercy pop up. Darsh is not currently on there. And they tell what's been going on. Um, Dandy and Mercy, or sorry, Dandy and Michael are on their way to Paxawal. They literally just left, are leaving RUL. Um, no, I'm sorry, they're kind of in between. RUL. So what they've decided, what they decide to do is that they're going to keep heading towards Paxwell, meet the Morgenstern, hop on that ship, and then Dandy's going to send her crew to Paxwell to restock, hang out, do what needs to be done, you know, get ready for the next mission and stuff. Um, and that's the quickest way because they don't Darcy and them don't want to wait till Dandy gets there. The Misty Dandy line's only half the speed of the Morgenstern, when they could just meet them halfway. Um, Dandy, they say that's a great idea. Dandy says, okay, since we're not going to make it to Paxwell, can you do us a favor? And Mercy and Artemis are like, okay, what do you need? By this point, Darsh is on there as well. She goes, there's a store in Paxawal. Um, there's a package there for us. It's a place called the Holy Blade. I thought somebody called my name. It's a place called the Holy Blade. There's a package for us there. If you go in and ask for Weber, tell them that Dandy and Michael sent you, need you to pick up a package for us. Can you do that? And they're like, of course, yes, we'll do that. Darsh is going to be here tomorrow, take a day to get going, and we'll start heading that way. And so Danny says, okay. So she gets out there, and like before, tells Lyman, Lyman kicks the gear, and the crew starts going there. She tells, explain what's going on. This is a magic thing. We don't, of course, while it may not be undead specifically, at this point, we don't know. We're going to go to the Elven Kingdom. What I want you to do is take the ship to Paxawal, park it, let the crew do what they need to do. I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. I'll hopefully be back at most in 30 days. Stay there. Tell the crew it's a paid furlough at this point. Keep them on retainer. Um, so she gets the boat going in that direction as well. So she's coming. Like, if you want to look at it, she's coming this way. Darsh is coming this way. He's going to get there and then meet them over there. Well, our main two are at Paxable. So Artemis and Mercy make their way to the Holy Blade that evening. They were told to go later in the day. Why, they don't know, but Dandy said that. They show up right in the evening when most stores would be starting to close. Uh, they knock, the door itself is closed and appears to be locked, although the sign is open. So they knock on the door. A moment later, the door opens up, and standing there is an older, burly dwarf named Weber. Hey, what does Weber look like? Bam, Weber looks like that. Um, that is the actor I'm using. Picture a longer beard, but still baldish on top. Except he looks like he's definitely seen some battles. There's cuts and some scars on his face. Not horrendously bad, but definitely he's had some stuff. I'm not sure if you know who that actor is. I apologize. I do not know his name specifically. Uh, I saw him on a show called Supernatural a while back. Kind of inspired the character. Uh, I saw a few episodes of the show. Don't know a lot about it, but that's him. So that's Weber. Um, Weber, you know, ask what they want, and they say, Hi, I'm Mercy, and this is Lady Artemis, we're from the temple. Dandy and Michael sent us to pick up a package. And he looks at them, and like he's studying them, especially Mercy. But Artemis, he's getting, looking both back and forth, and he's like, Okay, come on in. And when they step inside, he immediately, there's, there's a bowl there next to the door, he immediately asks them to wash their hands before touching anything. The ladies are like, okay. So they wash their hands in the water. And he's kind of just studying them the whole time that they do it. And after they're done, there's a little towel there to dry off. He seems much more relaxed. He's like, all right, come on in. 
He goes, Dandy? Yeah, I know Dandy and Artemis. He goes, and I've heard of you guys. Dandy Dandy tells stories about you all the time. <laughs> of course, Dandy just tells stories all the time. It's barely possible to get a word in. They kind of laugh, and he's like, so uh, you're going to be meeting up with them again? What's going on? And they say, oh, they, they give a little bit of information. We're doing what we can to try to help the clerics. He's like, ah, yes, I'd heard of that. I've heard of that. Well, understandable. Let me do what I can help you out with. Um, let's see. Um, now, interesting thing. Anybody else who comes in here who's not a cleric has to go through a lot more work. Um, but he has a, a bunch of stuff for Dandy. So basically what he hands for her, 40 silver-headed light X, light crossbow bolts, two silver daggers plus one, four globes of holy water. Uh, let's see, a 10-foot... Uh, oh, no, sorry. A uh, titanium chair that's been blessed. Fresh garlic bulbs, 20 silver sling bullets blessed. Uh, let's see, scroll versus the undead and a spell cure light wounds. Um, Weber basically runs a shop, and his shop caters to people who need stuff. A lot of it's, you know, thing, voodoo dolls and chicken feet and all that kind of stuff, but he also has, it's, his, his house is also, or his store is kind of a hub for hunters in the area to resupply. And so he, uh, he, he's also a place where he, uh, he has his own rumor mill, so a lot of times people show up in the area and he'll be like, hey, there was rumors of undead over here, some skeletons were sighted over there, zombies in this graveyard, these rumors. And so he's a source of people like Dandy and Michael, because they're not the only ones out there, of people who uh, hunt undead. And he has uh, not only metal, many books on the subject, he's very knowledgeable on it, he's also a blacksmith, and he makes most of the weapons and such he does. So they're pretty good quality, and then a lot of times he'll have them blessed. So, because Dandy was not there, the way that the characters set it up on their timeline, because I let them decide this, they did not get to speak with anybody in the Thieves' Guild. So they didn't get any of the Thieves' Guild information. So I had a set for that. Um, they get this group of this, and it's really anti-undead stuff. Things that they would need. Silver bolts, you know, silver daggers, garlic, holy water. things. It was holy water in the bowl. Anybody coming in who was cursed or something would actually be inflicted pain from that. Artemis immediately knew what it was when she put her hand in it. But Mercy's like, okay, I'm washing my hands. Why? I don't want to get your place dirty, I guess. Um, but it's just, if it had been anybody but a cleric, uh, there was also a, a spell he would have cast of detection on them. Because he doesn't just let anybody in the door. But eventually, sure enough, um, they go ahead and um, get to vote. Darsh shows up. Um, while they're very excited to see each other, uh, they know it's important. Um, immediately, Artemis and Mercy move their things to the ship. Even though it's going to be a day before they leave, they want to be ready to go the second they can. There's still a room there that's uh, kind of for them. It's just been storage mostly, uh, but they moved the, the, sh the crew had already moved stuff out of there and put the beds back in so they had their own place. Not the fanciest of beds, but they're comfortable. And it's a good enough space. They also made uh, room for Dandy and Michael. Um, next to that. Normally there's a room for the girls, room for the guys, but Dandy and Michael are going to want their own room. It's assumed. Um, let's see. So, they show up and of course once they're there, uh, they say goodbye to Lycos as well. Uh, says that he doesn't know how long the clerics are going to last. Um, the fact that they have so much magic, they're so powerful, um, the poison moves slowly, um, but he can only urge them to go as quickly as possible. They're going to do everything they can to try to keep it stable here. Uh, let's see. Ba, 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 ba. Yes. So, the Morgastern stocks up on its stuff. They get everything they need. They leave Paxwell and start heading back towards, um, Arduel. Once they hit Arduel, they'll hit, they'll hit Dandy before then. Grab Dandy and Michael, hit Arduel real quick, grab a few more supplies, and then push on 
to the elven waters and see what that does. And uh, sure enough, they successfully meet Dandy and Michael. Um, it only takes a few minutes to transfer them to the ship with their information because Dandy and Michael just fly over on the magic carpet, uh, which Dar- Artemis, afraid of heights, is like, but everybody else is like, well, that could come in handy. It's probably good that we have that again because none of them have had access to that except Dandy. Uh, they make their rooms and they continue on. Uh, let's see. So the Morgastern, and this is after they pick up Danny and Michael and they're still kicking on and they're getting going. The Morgastern cuts through the waters at full speed. The crew had been pushing it to its limits for two weeks. The mage, the mage had been incredible. Under their influence, the ship had uh, reached speeds it never had before. So the mage is exhausting himself using all the magic he can, but he's n- which means he's not using magic to defend the ship. They get into battle of some kind, they're not going to have any magic to help. Darsh too pushed himself to new limits. He knew his ship from front to back, and his skills had grown over the year. He threw his strength to any task possible, doing anything to push the ship further. Time was short, and it was up to him to get them to their destination in time. So it does take them time to get there, and the time to get back to Arjuel, and then get back. It takes almost a week and a half to get there, to two weeks. It's it's a long travel. These, these kingdoms aren't right next door to each other. Um, let's see. It is finally at the edge of what was claimed as Elven Waters that Darsh finally gives the order to slow the ship. Because you don't want to come into Elven Waters at full speed. I mean, you can imagine that. You come into any waters where you could be viewed as an enemy. You don't want to be coming through flying. It'll look like you're on an attack. So they come down to a much slower, cautious speed. Um, but continue on. Uh, it's a, let me see. Ba, 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 ba. So that's where they're moving. Now I'm going to cut through time here. It's halfway, approximately halfway through that voyage. Um, as usual, each night you gather in Darsh's room for dinner. Um, all of your friends are gathered, as well as Doram, who's enjoying a meal with you, uh, enjoying a nice meal, discussing your plans when Michael takes over the conversation. It says, Dandy and I have been eliminating undead for a while now. We've made a, quite a few contacts with like-minded individuals. Uh, Weber is one such ally. All the contacts say the same thing. Accounts of undead are popping up more frequently. More are rising in one form or another, and our allies are worried. So over the past year, just from the rumors and from the hunting community, there are more and more undead popping up all over the place, not just in one specific area, and no one knows the source of why that's happening. Can't be the Death Stone, they hope, but you don't know. He says, Dandy and I do our best to wipe out any we can, but we've, and we've been very successful, but I'm worried something is afoot. The ranks of undead is growing faster than we can kill them. Uh, Smiling down at Dandy, Michael continues, I can't begin to explain how much it means to me to have her by my side in our battles. She's always been the light in my heart. Um, See, Michael pushes his chair back, going down to one knee. I don't know where this journey will take us, and I do not know what we may face, but I only know that whatever it may be, I can face it with you by my side. Uh, Reaches into a pocket and pulls out a small velvet bag. Uh, Opening, he dumps a small or shiny object into his hand. It felt only fitting, Michael continues, to ask you this while we are surrounded by all of our friends. I do not have much to offer. I am not a wealthy man. I have only what you see before you, but all that I am and would give to you selflessly. Uh, My sweetest dandelion, would you be my bride? So they've been together for a long time, and he decides now in this situation with everybody here, he's going to go ahead and propose. Uh, In his hand, Michael holds a beautifully crafted ring. Uh, and of course, Danny just basically glumps him. She just tackle hugs him kind of thing and fold the floor. And uh, everybody starts clapping and it's happy time, you know, of all of them. Uh, 
Dandy's the first one to have any type of romantic interaction. Um, and Michael's asked to marry him. So everybody's very excited. Now they ask Dandy if she, or sorry, they ask Artemis when all this is done and they settle down and they get back home, if she would marry them at their temple. They've, Dandy's like, I've so wanted to see your temple and I know it's getting close to getting done. I would love to see it. Would you, would you be the one to marry us? And he says, yes. Um, and then um, Darsh, of course, going to take the best man role and Mercy will take on maid of honor kind of role. So there's that. Um, so they got engaged. Um, no specific date set. That type of thing is not as important. In the spring kind of thing. Um, but they're gonna, they want to be married by Artemis in her temple. It'll be the first, per- first person to ever do that in the temple. And Artemis thinks that's only fitting. Um, but that was just a little interlude that I threw into the middle of the adventure that they had no idea that was coming. Um, I planned one way or another they were going to do it on a ship, whether they met them somewhere else or whatever, but, but I had that written out for Michael to do eventually. Okay. So we jump back. That happened on the way. Now they're entering into Elven waters. So of all these folks here, no one, or no one had ever seen the Elven shore and returned. So they have no idea where to go. Uh, decided to head straight to shore along the lines of what would be Arduel and land and just try to follow it along the coast. Uh, none of them believe they're going to make it that far without running into somebody anyways. And they're very correct in their assumption. Not one day passes before they see the sails on the horizon heading straight for them. Uh, now Darsh um, can see that there are two ships coming and both of them are bigger than his. Um, immediately he calls for an all stop. Make sure that everybody's visible, no weapons out, none of that stuff. One of their biggest weapons they have is Artemis. They bring Artemis right up in front and center. Because again, a cleric of healing is not normally going to be riding along on an evil ship or a ship meant with negative uh, uh, objectives. So the elven ships are beautiful. It's half again, let's see, it's half again bigger the size of the Morgenstern. And its design makes makes it look very fast and fragile. No less than 50 elves line its rails, each with an arrow pointed down at the Morgenstern. So as these fly up, they're just literally two ships lined with bows and arrows pointed at them. Another elf, whose clothes indicate a higher rank, steps up to the railing. He looks over at Darsh and his crew, obviously unimpressed. You are trespassing in elven waters, belonging to the elven nation of Santriel. I can only assume you are lost and that this was a mistake. As a courtesy, I will give you two minutes to turn your vessel around and leave with all haste before we will be forced to destroy you. Guy seems a little arrogant, a little snotty, if you will. But, you know, I assume this is a mistake. Darsh is like, this is no mistake. We've come to seek your help. There have been... Uh, assassinations, there's been this going on, and he's like, that does not concern, your human and minotaur concerns do not concern us. And and Artemis speaks up, I'm a cleric from the temple of Paxiwal. Temples have been attacked with a magic point, starts to tie, and goes, goes, and with all respect, my lady, while I understand the concerns of your temple, do not have any, or the effect, has no concern for us in the Elven Kingdom. Those are problems for humans and their allies. And you have one minute left, <laughs> kind of a thing. And Darsh is like, I'm not sure what else to say. And they're basically, Michael's basically almost just standing there with his hand over Danny's mouth because Danny's ready to start yelling at him. When suddenly there is a voice coming from behind Darsh. 
General Sprintwell, you will lower your weapons immediately and stand down. That, sir, is an order. Silence once again fills the air as the elf before you's face gets a very confused and then very angry expression. What trickery is this? He yells back. Who among you thinks to command an elven vessel, and how do you know my name? I make such a command, states Nathaniel, stepping into the open where he can be seen. After just a moment, a look of shocked recognition appears on the elven general's face. Your Highness, he whispers, dropping to his knees. Almost as one, all the elves also fall to their knees, weapons down, eyes down to the ground. For the record, that's Nathaniel. I don't know who that is. I can't remember where I found it, but I thought he looked perfect. Your crew is caught completely by surprise. Nathaniel looks at Darsh, an apologetic look on his face. Turning back to the elven general, he commands the elves to rise. The look on their faces is one of joy. Tears fall freely from some of their eyes. Sire, the general explains, we feared you lost, dead. All of Centrail has mourned. The people will be uplifted. This is indeed a wonderful day. Nathaniel looks uncomfortable under the praise. My good general, this is Darsh Fohammer, captain of this vessel and my ally. You will escort this vessel to the nearest port, where my friends and I shall make our way to the capital. The general looks very confused. You wish, um, these people to go to the capital? Nathaniel's face gets very grim and serious. Those were my orders, General. Do you question them? Immediately the General looks ashamed. Of course not, sire. We shall do so immediately. Captain Fohammer, if you could please follow us to port. Darsh, of course, is... Oh. Thank you very much, Shelton, for the follow. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming by. Uh, Darsh agrees and gets the boat moving. And, and, and he turns to Nathaniel and he goes, you and I, sir, have to talk. The uh, general's like, will you come to our ship, sir? And he goes, no, I will stay on this ship until we reach the shore. He then goes, he, along with Darsh and the other characters, and Dorham, who wants to go, is a little concerned as well, but he has to get the ship rolling. They go back into Darsh's chamber. He explains to them that he is Nathalian Even, Eveningstar, the youngest son of Sovereign Landron Evenstar, ruler of Santriel. He was also the general of their navy, which is how he knows everybody there. Five years before the merge, he had a great argument with his father. Um, Nathaniel had believed the time to open trade with other races and to stop being so closed in had come. Um, let me see here. Ba -ba 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 -ba. There had been a lot of this is even before Arduel, but even with the other kingdoms around them before this, there was a lot of hostilities with the other races, uh, humans, dwarves, and so on, um, and they were de dead on both sides. There was, it was almost a warlike state. And Nathaniel wanted to call it peace and open their borders. Their oldest brother, Crown Prince Tastadil, uh, agreed with the Sovereign that, hell no, we're not doing any of that. No non-elven will, person will ever do that kind of stuff. Um... Not agreeing with his uh, older brother and his father, he uh, basically ran away. Now again, he's young for an elf. He was barely four or five hundred years old. Um, so he he decided that he, he wanted to go out in, in a goal of trying to prove his father wrong. He wanted to go out into the world 
and see what the other races are like. Because being, a, as he was, other than, you know, occasional battle from the trees, because he's still a, or from the boats as well, because he's still the general Navy, he has to follow his father's orders. He really had no personal experiences with any of the other races. And so he, he went to go out there and, and find and prove that there were good people to his father. While he was out there, of course, he ended up, the merge happened. He learned that Santriel had come through as well. Um, but by this point, he had grown to enjoy the company of the humans and other elves from other worlds and such. He enjoyed working on their ships and had decided not to go home, um, much assuming that they assumed him dead and leaving it better that way. Um, most of the time, he just goes by Nat, is what they call him on the ship. They don't call him Nathalian. Um, well, rarely does he give his full name to anybody. Um, he didn't want to really say who he was, but he knows how important the mission is once Darshan explained it to everybody. Earlier when he was asked, he didn't know what was going on, so he said he didn't know anything. Um, he didn't want to reveal himself, but he felt it was the best way to help his captain and his ship. Um, he says, when all this is done, I don't know where this is going to take us. My, li my life, and as well as yours, is about to get very complicated, but if there's any way in the future this can happen, I would like to stay aboard your, cat your, your, your ship. And Darsh is like, it's not that I don't want an elven prince on my ship. You've been an amazing crewman. But we also are going to have to look at what type of relationship that's going to give us with Santriel. He goes, I would love to keep you for sure. But is this going to put the other crewmen in danger? He goes, I would love to have you stay, but that's a decision we're going to have to make when, when the time comes. And Nathaniel's like, I understand that. So it takes about a day and a half for the ships to reach um, the port of Valeriel. And um, the general immediately sends word to the capital. You know, people are full speed to get there to let them know what's going on. Um, and going ashore is Darsh, Mercy, Artemis, Dandy, Michael, of course, Nathaniel. Um, but that's all that they're taking with them. They're not taking anybody else. Everybody else is staying on the ship. Um, with, um, and right there in front of the general goes, you know, and uh, I'm sure we won't be gone more than 30 days. So again, he doesn't know how big this is, how long, what's going to be going on. Um, in 30 days, if, if for something, you know, for any reason, I know supplies will get low. Go ahead and go right back to RUL, leave in 30 days. Basically, if we're not back in 30 days, leave without us. That's fine, right, General? And the General looks at Nathalian and he goes, yes, of course. Captain Fohammer, of course. If they need to leave in 30 days, that's understandable. Because he's sure as hell not going to let them wander the shore. Everybody on that boat is going to be on that boat for the next 30 days. So they'll be living off their own supplies. Um, so the port of Valeriel is almost hidden. It wasn't for the, uh, if it wasn't for the long, well-crafted dock, you wouldn't even know there was a port city within the huge trees that go right to the shore. Uh, the, the, you dock the Morgenstern, where they dock the Morgenstern, uh, where directed and prepare to leave the ship. Um, so General Sprintwell is going to be coming with them. Um, there are, are a couple of carriages that show up to take them. that are being pulled by huge silver elk. So there's two, uh, carriages. Uh, the general tries to get Nathaniel alone in one, uh, but Nathaniel uh, requires that Darsh get in with him. So it's the general, Darsh, and Nathaniel, and then Artemis, Mercy, Michael, and Dandy in the one behind them. Um, it's going to take almost a, you know three or four days to get there. And these elk don't stop. They're, you know they can sleep in there, stop for bathroom breaks, food supplied. But the elk, this is this is a serious business. They're going on there. Um, word of what's going on, of course, as they're spreading spreads as it's going to the kingdom. So as they're going, more and more people are crowding the streets, waving and such, because this is a crown prince, well-beloved by his people, thought dead, mourned for five years. 
Um, and let's see. Uh, but after days of this, uh, again, beautiful, beautiful roads, nature looks all natural, going through small villages and such that half the time you can barely tell they're there. They're built so well into the trees themselves. But eventually they reached the elven kingdom of Everlong, which is the capital city of Santrail. There are several large cities in the woods themselves. The beauty of the capital city of Everlong is breathtaking. Even Artemis had to admit that even her beautiful elven homeland was nothing compared to the massive angelic towers before them. Reaching high up into the huge trees, huge ancient trees, the top of the towers were lost in the branches. Beautiful statues and fountains adorn beautiful parks. The road is paved with a white pearl-like stone, and the buildings are also like work of arts, amazing to behold. Thousands of people have lined up along the ancient streets. They cheer and wave, excited by the return of the prince they all thought dead. Finally, the carriage comes to a stop before the home of the sovereign, the palace itself. It appears more like a massive tower than a castle, but clearly it's the most beautiful building any of them had ever seen. The doors to your carriage is open and you slowly climb out. The crowd, which a moment ago was cheering wildly, goes completely silent. A murmur of concern filling the air. Because, you know, Darst just stepped out. <laughs> There's never, ever probably been a Minotaur, ever, in that step out, standing in that spot in the thousands upon thousands of years that this kingdom existed. As Nathaniel steps out after Darst, though, again, the crowd cheers, though not quite as enthusiastically as before. Nathaniel makes a point of coming over to Darsh, shaking his hand and greeting him warmly. The effect is not lost on the crowd. Turning, he motions you all should head inside, and as you turn that way, the walkway leading to the tower door is lined with um, armed elven warriors standing at attention, and the doors ahead of them open. Uh, they are taken inside by the general, and inside is a large throne room. Sovereign Landrian, who's a very old elf, and unfortunately somebody I never did get a picture for, Picture of a very old elf. Um, old elf, still got energy, will rush forward to embrace his son. He thanks, and then immediately, of course, turning to the general and thanking him for a job well done and finding his son and bringing him home. The general nervously standing there, accepting that, even though, you know, he didn't really go find him. Nathaniel then points out, well, just to be fair, sir, it was Captain Fohammer that brought me back to the back to our kingdom. I, I traveled with him and explains that story. The sovereign grudgingly thanks Darsh for bringing his son back to him, but it's very much so when he's having a hard time taking his eyes off of Nathaniel. Again, he thought his son was dead. He does take him off long enough to introduce um, Prince Tastadil, his eldest son, and Nathaniel's older brother. And there is Tastadil. So he is the oldest of the brothers. Tastadil coming down, also a bit arrogant like you know, elves are. Um, but polite. I mean, he's, he's, he's a noble He knows how to act the way he's supposed to. Uh, again, thanks Darsh. A little bit more so than the father did. Thanking them for bringing his brother home. They feared him dead. And it's a great day of celebration for the entire kingdom to finally have his little brother uh, back with them in the elven kingdom. Um, they're invited to sit. Chairs are brought in. Uh, Darsh looks at it. They bring in two more chairs, and he sits literally across a couple of them. Um, and then Nathalian tells his story. Um, and he, he tells, I left of my own. You and I had a disagreement, so on and so forth. Um, I went to prove you wrong, and Father, I have to say I was right. I was out there, great people, so on and so forth. Um, 
when he explains that he works from Darsh, that he's basically in his employ, both Tastadil and the Sovereign are like shocked. Um, and the Sovereign knows who Darsh is. And Darsh is like, you're aware of me? He goes, we know your islands. They're just outside of our waters. And anything going on anywhere near a kingdom, we make it a point of understanding exactly what we're looking at. At this point, of course, you don't appear any threat. And you, until just this situation, you've avoided our waters completely. So at this point, we had no reason to be a concern. But yes, we're very well aware of you and the building that you're doing on your islands on our border. Makes a point of saying on our border. Because he's not super far from Elven waters. Um... Oh, uh, and they, you know, let's see here. So, uh, so he goes, I, well, I understand you brought my son back to me. Or, well, you brought my brother back to me, Tassadil says. He could have come back at any time. Clearly, he's been in your employ for, as I believe you said, a little over a year to two years at this point. So I would have to ask, why now? The Sovereign, a little shocked because, you know, he's just happy to have his son back. But he also kind of agrees. He doesn't really want to stomp his son down. But his son's being a little bit more abrupt. And Artemis, the only one in the group that they're giving any real genuine happiness to, because Artemis is an elf and a cleric. Uh, you could tell by her robes that she's a relatively high rank uh, cleric. So that's the one person in the group that the elves are genuinely, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome, lady. Uh, what do you say her name is? Yes. Welcome to the thing. Uh, I'm not, not from us, of course, but um, hopefully you're, you know, it's good to be back among your own kind, which are all little elbow nudges to everybody else in the group. Um, but they're genuinely nice to Artemis. I have to point that. So it's Artemis that says, um, well, we have a problem. Paxwall, as we mentioned before, um, two of the L, uh, two of our uh, highest clerics, Brother Bartholomew, Brother Mera, um, have been infected with a type of poison um, that is immune to even our magical abilities. We haven't been able to heal it. it. tells the basic story. And they're like, whoa, we've never quite heard of a poison like that. That's, I'm definitely sorry to hear of uh, your, your allies' sickness and injuries and such. And Aris said, yes. And so we're looking for anything we can, you know, any uh, option we have to try to cure them. And while magic has not worked, we've tried looking into herbal cures. And at that, Tassadil and his father both kind of give each other a look and they look back like, okay, we know where this is coming. And she goes, and we've been made aware of something called a sovereign's breath. Um, now, when, as soon as they mention that, Tassadil, as soon as he sees it coming, um, begins to stand up and is like, I cannot believe that you would dare. And his sovereign's like, whoa, calm, calm. And the sovereign says that the sovereign's breath is incredibly rare. Yes, it does exist. Um, not only is it rare, it's literally highly valued by the elven nation. Um, and it's not something that is given away. Um, Nathaniel starts to argue back. Well, you know, I mean, yes, but these are special situations. We're wanting to use it on clerics, you know, trying to hope that would help the case. And him and Tasted will start going back and forth while the father's trying to calm them a bit down. It's not the rarity of the plant that is, the, is your problem, says a voice from behind the characters. Turning around, they see another elf, smaller in statue than all the others, but bearing an obvious resemblance to the royal family. Walking next to him is a large black and silver panther, obviously his companion. It's the difficulty of getting to it that's the problem. Nathaniel rushes up and gives him a big old hug. 
This is his brother Pontius, the middle son. Let me put away Tacitus and grab Pontius. Pontius is the middle son. Older than Nathalian, but younger than Tastadale. Um, as the middle child, he's always, always the neutral one in these arguments. Uh, they introduce him. Uh, Shammer is his pet, or his, his companion. That's his panther. Been with him since he was a little kid. Uh, very ranger. He's a ranger, so you know, explains that. Um, so explain, he then hears the story of what's been going on. And Pontius explains that the issue is that they only grow on the graves of the dead. And they have to be dead of basically the royal family. Even then, it's have to be of rank. So like a cousin wasn't going to work. It's about the magic and stuff that's within the bloodline. That kind of a thing. He explains that uh, the ancient burial grounds, which are days travel away, right? Good make mac and cheese. All right, enjoy your mac. <laughs> um, explains that the burial grounds are currently locked in off-limits to all elves. And at this, Nathaniel's even a little shocked and turns to his father. And the sovereign agrees, yes, um, he goes, what my sons say is true. Shortly after what you called the merge happened, um, darkness started filling that edge of the woods. The, there's a, there was a city on the other, a small village on the other side of the of the. Uh, graveyard, but when this merge happened, that city did not come through with us. It made the uh, gr what is our great cemetery of all of our ancient leaders and such um, closer to the their eastern edge. Uh, I should point that way, eastern edge. Um, and that why why is he over my face? Why did I do that? Uh, <laughs> the eastern edge and uh, things of darkness and evil were found there. People began to go missing. There were injuries, um, and so. We, unfortunately, basically, I commanded that the graveyard be locked off and no one to go there. So they have other graveyards, but that's the big fancy one. So everybody else has been buried in other places since then. Nathaniel goes, why didn't you send in the Holy Guard? Why didn't you send in our clerics and our soldiers? And Tassel goes, our, he goes, our warriors were needed on the western border to stop the encroachment of the humans that are trying to infiltrate our kingdom. And Nathaniel and Tassie will get right back into an argument again about, no, they're not that bad, they're just trying to be friendly. No, you don't understand. And, it's, and, and again, the sovereign seems to be taking more of Tassie's side while Pontius is trying to get everybody to shut up, just trying to calm down, try to be the neutral party. Um, so the sovereign says that says, enough of this, speak for now. My son is home and this is a day for celebration. I do not want to hear the same arguments over and over again. He goes, he turns to everybody and goes, you of course are guests of mine and my son's. Um, we hope you, you will stay, stay with us. There will be a great feast later this evening. We'll have some food and such. We can hang out properly. Thank you before you leave. And everybody just kind of stands there like, okay. <laughs> and he says, if you will, if you wouldn't mind, um, and he points to like some guards or whatever. They will escort you to chambers where you may rest until dinner. Um, if you do not mind, I would like to have some time alone with my sons. Uh, something I have been robbed of these many years. And, that, that, and he says that, and he says it with pure genuine, like I regret. Like I've lost years with my son. I just want to spend some time with him, if you don't mind, before we all get back to talking and everybody starts arguing again. It's basically what he's saying. And they're like, we understand that. Okay. So they go with them 
to the rooms, to to some rooms that they're given and, and such. They're given basically two rooms, one for the guys, one for the girls. They're not they're kept pretty close and, and fortunately for their protection, several elven guards are standing outside the rooms at all time. You know, we'd hate something to happen to them. Um okay. So they're taking back room and they rest and to rest and such. And they begin talking about what's going on. And then suddenly Michael goes, oh no. And they look over and they're like, what? And he looks around the room and everybody looks and there's no sign of Dandy. Dandy's in a giant elven kingdom. You can't miss that kind of an adventure. Wow, thought Dandy. A real elven kingdom. Dandy moved through the halls silently like a shadow. She'd been to many amazing places in her life, but none were as pretty as this place. And that kitty, Pontius's kitty, was so awesome. Dandy knew that if she just asked nice enough, he'd let her pet it. And just, she just needed to get him alone so she could ask him nicely. Dodging a couple guards, she was standing behind a big plant when she heard the sovereign's voice. Maybe he knew where Pontius was. Making her way down the hallway, it was then a very simple matter to climb up to the window above. Because it's Dandy. <laughs> Something's going to happen to them. Yeah. <laughs> Looking down inside, she saw the Sovereign and all three princes talking. Uh, Shamer sat uh, next to Pontius on the floor. Danny wanted to wave, but she could see that the conversation was serious, so she decided to wait until they were done before interrupting. Would be the polite thing to do. I cannot believe you brought them here to the palace, said Tastadil. No outsider has done so in over twenty years. They are my friends and allies, Nathaniel was saying again, clearly for multiple times, and Darsh is my captain. They needed my help for a noble cause, and it was within my power to help them. It's what I was supposed to do, and it's what should have been done. But what you ask is too much, says the Sovereign. The Sovereign's breath is only used in the most dire situations. And to give it to one not of our own blood? Clerics, exclaimed Nathaniel. Holy servants to the gods of good. Can there be a more worthy person? They are humans, Tassadil said, disgust in his voice. They are savages and they are outsiders, and they deserve nothing. You would condemn a whole race over the actions of a few, exclaims Nat. The same argument you made before, my son, spoke the sovereign, but it was my decision to make, and your brothers agreed with me. Danny noticed Nat glance at Pontius just a moment before continuing, and it was wrong then as it is now. I have seen so much good in them. I've told you how Captain Fohammer and his friends fought against evil every chance they had, and together they opened the world again. Yes, Tassadil agreed, just as you told us that it was humans who caused the merge to begin with. The Sovereign sighed. This is getting us nowhere. You will not change my mind in this. Frustration was obvious in Nat's face. Am I disowned? He, bl he blurted out. Everyone else was shocked silent. Of course not, his father replied. I have made no such claim. You are a prince, and that shall not change. Then as a member of the royal family, it is my right by law to request the use of the sovereign's breath. I will give the flower that is mine to the humans. You cannot do this, yells Tassadil, his fist balling up in anger. It is sacred, and by law it is mine to use as I see fit, screamed back Nathaniel. I agree with Nathaniel said Pontius softly, and everyone in the room goes silent and looks at him, Tassadil seething in anger. It is his right, continued Pontius, and the law is clear. I have often regretted backing the decision to close our borders, but the grief of mother's death ruled my thoughts. 
Everyone listened silent, and even Tassilo's face turned to sadness as they remembered. The ancient burial grounds has become a tainted has become tainted with the dark force uh, since this merge happened. Those sent to inspect it did not return. Father closed the road and declared the area off-limits. Our intent was to take a well-armed force to take it back, but troubles with the humans on the border became our main focus. Stepping next to Nat, Pontius addressed his father. If his friends are as powerful as he says, then maybe they will assist us in their own way. Let them go after the flower. If they succeed then they will have destroyed that which, are, uh, that which uh, soils our land with evil. If they fail, then we've lost nothing by letting them try. The sovereign looked thoughtful at this. He turned to Tassadil. As much as I hate to go back on my own word, I have to say this does sound like a good thought. Tassadil nodded in agreement. While it burns me to know they walk our lands, I agree with Pontius. If we can use them in this fashion, it may be worth it. But remember, Nathalian must be the one to cut the flower. Only royal hands may do so. The sovereign looked sad at this, but nodded. So be it then. In the morning you may offer them this. But enough of this talk tonight. I wish to sit with my sons and speak of times past and times lost. The elves, elves all walked to a doorway leading out. Dandy watched the big kitty stretch and then follow Pontius. She really, really wanted to pet him, but didn't want to mess up the family reunion. With a sigh, she climbed down and began walking back to her friends. They want to know what she heard, especially of evilness in the graveyard. Looks like her and Mike were on the job again. <laughs> I liked that. So sure enough, she goes back and she talks with the party. And explains, hey, this is what I overheard. Of course, they all chastise her a whole bunch, especially Michael. And she's like, what? There was a kitty! And he's like, oh, God, we're going to... Just dreading the fact that he's going to come back to the ship one day and there's going to be a cat there. He's like, that's all we need, cats on the ship. But, <laughs> but he's like, uh... So, there is the meal that night. It's pretty quiet. It's not a big celebration like everybody thought it would be. Everybody has a meal. People are mostly quiet. Sovereign asks politely some questions about them. Their past, where were you from originally, your worlds, what are your goals at this point? And Dandy and Michael say, you know, we basically hunt undead. They're a little interested in that. Even Tassadil's like, oh, really? Go to the graveyard, you say. And uh, Nat, during the, near the end of dinner, as I go back, Nathaniel goes ahead and explains the decision. I've spoken with my father, and it is my right as a prince to claim the sovereign's breath. One that grows there. I may claim one once in my life. Normally, the royal family would claim it if they were to fall ill. That's what it's for, for whatever reason. Um, but he goes, I have decided that I will give mine, that is by law, I mean, to you for, for the mission that you're on. But we will have to get to it. And explains what they know of darkness, or the, the whatever is, not darkness, but evil, whatever's been messing with the, the graveyard. People going missing uh, from the small towns and such around there. Um, and... At this point, there are guards and such on the road that are locked to going there, and they've made it illegal to go there, which, of course, hurts the people, because people very commonly would go to tend the gardens in the, in the graveyard, and you know, flowers make it a place of life and uh, uh, remembrance, more than like a dark place. Um, so no one's been able to do that. The clerics that normally would go there and say prayers on holidays and special occasions, you know, um, bring, pray for the goodwill of the... Uh, ancestors and such, they haven't been able to do that. There are other smaller graveyards for common, but that's where the royal family has been buried for a very long time. Um, they say that they'll be given a ride as far as to where the road is closed, but at that point, they will carry on. Nathaniel says, 
I will be going with you as well because only myself my, or my brothers or my father, we're the only ones that have the ability uh, to cut the flower. It has to be done in a specific way. Um, we're trained in how to do that. Even the clerics don't really mess with it. It's passed down from father to son. Because if it's cut the wrong way, someone who does not follow the bloodline that of the grave that it grows on, the plant will immediately wilt. So while the, the sovereign is not happy to see his son marching into this situation, kind of has to. Or he has to send one of the other ones, and he's not doing that either. All right, so let's see here. So, 10 o'clock. see how much further we want to go. Excellent. We're going to get into this a little bit. They agree, of course. They don't ask for any basic supplies beyond food and stuff. They're asked, do you need anything else? You know, not wanting to get in. They're like, no, we've got it. We take care of these things. They've got their chest of holding with them. they got their flying carpet. They don't know about the flying carpet, but they've got these things. Nathaniel knows about the flying carpet, but why bring it up, right? And they all, they get right in the carriage. It goes for literally another day and a half to two days to get to where this area is. This, this forest is huge. And even though there's roads, it's huge. And they get taken by these elk horses things again. They sleep in the carriages. It's relatively comfortable, but not that good. Finally, they reach to the point where no one is allowed to go any further. Um, Nathaniel gets out. And of course, all the guards there immediately recognize him, go to their knee, all that kind of stuff. He's like, rise, just stop that. <laughs> I have a letter from my father. We're to pass on through. And they're like, oh, okay, well, you're looking at Darsh and all them like, all right, take them into the darkness. <laughs> yeah, leave them in there. Good idea. But there's still a distance that has to go to get to the actual graveyard. It's or burial yard, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's still a ways off and they have to travel. And as they travel, making it that area, once they get past that, it's not very long before the road automatically starts showing um, signs of disuse. You know, even in a with the forest and the giant trees and such not being cared for. Roots start growing up, the ground cracks in some, grass and plants, just broken limbs and leaves, all things place. You know, it's, it's spring now, but you know, it's still going to fall there. Clearly, it's not been used in quite a while. Um, and in, uh, the further they go, the more the ground to the sides of the roads appears to look wet, almost marshy, to the point that there looks like they're going into the area that has become very swamp-like. Um, let's see. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Now, as they're moving along, Michael, um, with Menander in his hand, of course, is constantly in contact with Menander. Nobody else can hear Menander. No one else has ever heard Menander. Michael's the only one. And he's not full synced with Menander. Remember, when that happens, his hair goes into that whitish gray. His eyes start having that purpley smoke come out. Um, but his eyes do take on a bit of a purple twinge and such. And there's a little bit of a glow when he's speaking to Menander. And he's like, at this point, Menandra has sensed no undead anywhere within her, her range, which can differ... Her range differs depending on the undead. I talked about that before. If it's really powerful undead, she has to get closer. If it's a weaker undead, she'll find it much sooner. And that's because the undead normally have ways of hiding themselves. More powerful undead are usually more intelligent undead. Um, they've been going through the, for several hours, half a day at this point. Um, let's see. There were, two con there were two incidents on the way to the graveyard. And... When I talk about these, you might start putting things together. But as they're making their way in, they uh, they come up to a part of the road that literally has water going all the way across it. It's cracked. It's almost like a river is going through. It doesn't look super deep, but the water is moving relatively. Not bad enough you couldn't walk through, but I mean, they gotta, they'd have to go carefully. Um, 
Darce picks up a big stick and taps at it. For him, it's barely up to his knees, but for Dandy, it'd be up over her stomach. Uh, so Darce agrees to carry her across. Uh, Michael's pretty short, but he'll be okay. He's got Menandra to base him. And they start crossing the water. Um, it's probably only about 16, 17 feet to cross it, but as they're halfway through, they get attacked um, by Crocodile. Now, you're probably thinking, that sounds like an odd thing to pop out of the water in the middle of an elven kingdom. There's not a history of crocodiles in Santriel. None of the elves have ever seen a crocodile in Santriel. But these are very large crocodiles. We're not talking Lake Placid big, but still pretty big. And they start attacking. They, they literally attack out of nowhere. And they go at Darsh. He's the biggest one. You'd think they go after the small, easier to grab. But no, they go after Darsh first. And immediately the party has to go in combat. And there are three of them. Well, there are two of them at first. But then a third one comes out. But this one is different. This one appears to be part crocodile, part person. Almost like a human-eyed crocodile. And yelling commands in a language they don't understand, urging the crocodiles on, attacks as well. Still has the long snout, but not as long as regular. Also has the huge teeth and claws. It's not as big as the crocodiles. Uh, but this third thing is speaking in a language they don't know and is attacking them as well. So, they end up fighting against these things. And uh, anthropomorphic crocodiles. Not quite. Kind of. Humanoid-like crocodiles. You'll know a little bit more in a second. So while they're fighting them, they very quickly learn that the weapons they're using aren't doing much damage except for those who are wielding magical weapons. Now, most of them have magic weapons. Nathalian does not. They didn't bring any guards with him. Nathalian has a really good sword, but it's not really a magical sword. He did not take any of the family swords with him. Uh, they changed that in a minute. But they're fighting with him. But the one that seems to be doing the most damage is Dandy. Um, because she's using her brand new daggers that she got, which, very quickly, they realize are blessed... And silver. Seeing this, they switch their... Uh, the, the crocodile's taking damage, but the crocodile guy, not so much. And they're attacking him seriously. Dandy and Michael, very quickly, once they see this effect, understand exactly what's going on, but nobody else does. So Dandy and Michael very quickly switch up their strategy because they've run into this issue before. And very quickly, Michael, at that point, does his best to tackle the thing and jump on it putting himself in danger of taking a serious bite and a claw attack. But while the thing is reaching up to catch him and fight him, Dandy attacks from underneath, stabbing him clear in the heart with the dagger. The thing screams. Smoke burning from where the dagger stuck. It tries to pull it out, but its hands only catch into flame and stuff as it does. Everyone kind of steps back. The other crocodiles were dead by this point. Darsh, not sure what's going on, just does what Darsh does. Steps up, Lops the head right off the thing. And the body falls into the water. Now, Michael yells to grab it. Which Darsh does, grabs it and pulls the body up onto the shore. But as he does, the body, hemorrhaging and just threshing a little bit, shifts and changes. And what, they have in it, what he has in his hand appears to be the body of an elf. The head they can't find flowed down the river. That's correct. Where crocodiles are a monster in Dungeons and Dragons. Quite not, not some of the rarer where creatures defined, but yes, where crocs do exist.
Uh, let me see. All right, let me grab that one. That one. Make sure I'm doing the right, the second story here. Okay, yes. So, as they're traveling in, uh, continue on at this point, after several hours of travel, the water and marsh seems to come behind them. The ground again becomes drier, although the land in this area appears to be a bit more of a fall than spring, which is odd. Kind of darker, gloomier kind of look. And they make their ways, continuing through, being careful. Um, yes. And then, uh, as they're going along, they hear a cry from off in the, uh, the, the, the woods. Um, and they go in there, and they see that on an island, there is a female elf... Not an island. A section, a clearing, not island. A clearing uh, in the trees. They see a woman and a what looks like a teen boy um, being attacked by bats, of all things. And they're screaming for help. She's trying to hide her son, who looks relatively thin for even him, but he's weak. Michael's like, no, no one dead. I'm monitoring it. There's no one dead. But they're being attacked by large bats. I'm talking large bats. There's probably about six or seven bats. But they're elves, and of course, Nathaniel immediately says, we have to save my people, because they're elves. They're in San Trial. That's how that works. I just realized I still have their faces up here. Let me drop those now. <laughs> and so... Um, Sure enough, they go in to help. Um, as they go in to attack the bats, both the woman and the teen shift and change into large bat-like creatures themselves, taking to the air and attacking. The teen immediately gets a good grip on Dandy and tries to pull her up into the air, but Darsh is able to hit it really, really well, and it drops Dandy, and Dandy falls in such a way, while she's even really good at tumbling, she fell, and the wind gets knocked out of her, so she's out of the fight for a little bit. But now they're attacking these things, and the bats seem to be uh, attacking in unison with them. So they're fighting five or six large bats at this point, giant bats, which are about three to four feet wingspan, and the bodies on them are like that big. you know. Um, and these two werebats, because yes, werebats exist as well in Dungeons & Dragons. There's where everything. You never know where where stuff is. Uh, but yeah, so they are fighting that. So that was a battle about the werebats. This one was a little bit interesting because they're fighting creatures that can fly. Um, and they didn't have, you know, they're using their sling bullets and range stuff. The bats would, the bats, the, the large bats would come in and they'd be fighting them. And then the werebats would swoop in and try to grab people or do serious damage because they have the feet claws and hand claws. Where in this island? They'll get it. Where? <laughs> Right, right. So they're rushing in and, and coming. Not rushing; they're elves. But I mean, they're coming in, and that's happening in the claws and such. Uh, and so that's happening. you're right. It's yeah. It's W E R E is for wear bad or wear things. Um, but sure enough, it manages to work. Uh, most of the magic stuff that Michael has isn't going to help them. They have stuff for were-creatures. Were-creatures and undead show up occasionally on the hunt. Sometimes they're confused. They show up thinking they're going to fight undead. They find were-creatures. So Michael and Dandy have had a few minor were-things to deal with. But not all were-creatures are naturally evil, by the way. Some were-creatures are actually good. Um, and they have one experience with that. But those are stories for another day. Um, but yes, so the battle goes on, but after time, eventually, they're, they're able to beat the werebats as well. Uh, once Dandy's back up there and Dandy starts whipping silver daggers, it starts tearing into the wings. They hit the ground. Once they're on the ground, they're 
they're pretty screwed. They still got the claws and such, but against the party, well-armed as they are, they don't have any problem taking them out once they get them on the ground, uh, which they successfully do. And traveling on and on, they don't run into any more issues, and they finally make it eventually to... They have to camp at one point. They finally make it to the... Um, special burial grounds. So this is a very fancy place. Very fancy, what were probably metal um, walls. They're not solid. You can see through them, but it's like gates. I guess you say almost like a metal gate, but it's all twisted with runes and uh, symbols of trees and leaves and animals. It's just very beautiful, but it's got vines and stuff all growing over it now, and they look like they're rusting a bit from non-care, and uh, just looking through, they can see that the whole graveyard itself is completely overgrown, and some of the graves are still showing and such. Um, when they go into it, uh, the path is like a grid. Straight in the middle is the burial chamber of the uh, royals, and then there's paths that go out uh, kind of in like a grid pattern for... Um, nobles and clerics and special people of, of mention. Heroes. You know, somebody gets like that kind of thing. Uh, to be buried in this graveyard uh, is quite an honor. Um, so, if, you know, someone is named a hero, dies in combat, saving the, the prince from an assassination, he gets buried here, that's a serious mark of honor for his family moving on. Alright, so let me get to that. So the gates of the ancient burial ground stand open, almost inviting. The sun is just going down, but the trees are all, uh, already cover the area in shadows. The huge spiraling fence that surrounds the graveyard is overgrown. Vines and foliage, I just said that. Tonight, uh, tonight will be the full moon and time is of the essence. So the one thing that I told is they, the, pet, the, the plant has to be cut in the, uh, on the night of a full moon. That's the only time that it blooms on a full moon. And the petals have to, the flower has to be cut at that time. So they've got to do it tonight. They're on a timetable. Um, so they go in and they start making their way through. Um, again, it's very overgrown and unkept, but luckily the road goes straight to the targets. It's straight. Normally it'd be flat, but again, vines that have appeared from plants and stuff have grown, so the, sometimes the, the little pathway is cracked and such, um, where that's going on. You've got to be careful not to trip. Um, and they start heading in. Um, as they're making their way in, in the distance, they can see it. It's actually a big mausoleum in the middle place. They can see it from the, the first place they walk into. It's a good ways in there. And they're only within the graveyard for a minute or so, walking towards it carefully, when they begin to hear the howling. As the sun finally dips below the, you know, the borderline thing. Uh, anybody have any guesses? <laughs> Subtle, I am not. Um, the howling increases as they hear more and more voices. Uh, a lot of howling. And they immediately start running. And as they do, they hear the howling getting louder and louder from behind them. Sure enough, in the distance behind them, the elves, those with vision, people with good vision, can see the werewolves rushing into the graveyard behind them. And there are many. Um, they run as fast as they can to get to the mausoleum. Nathaniel's like, they should be able to see if they can barricade it from inside, uh, is the goal. Um, but even during that, they're attacked by multiple as they go through. So, um, Dandy, Michael, Artemis, Mercy, they're kind of running ahead. Darsh and Nathaniel, uh, they're kind of in the back with Mercy leading the way, because she's the, she's the best up front. As werewolves come in the front, she's trying to fight their way through that, while Darsh and Nathaniel are trying to keep them from behind. 
um, and fight their way through. Luckily, they're able to make it to the mausoleum before they're overrun, um, and they are able to pull the doors closed, but they take some serious damage in that fight. Uh, there were some serious hits to uh, Mercy, who was in the front, and Artemis has to use some of her better healing spells to bring that up. <clears throat> so, when they get into this <clears throat> mausoleum, <clears throat> the upper part, when you first come in, is actually a place where you would sit and pray. The one's buried in the upper lift. There's chairs where you, the, the royal family could come and sit, pray to the ancients, the priests would come in. It's a place where flowers and such would be, uh, symbols of holiness and such. Any of the banners and such that would normally be hanging on the walls, tapestries and such, have all been ripped or fallen off uh, and laying on the ground. Uh, luckily, it's very, very sturdy, and, and they can hear the wolves slamming on the outside, but they're able to barricade it from the inside uh, pretty well. There is a set of stairs that go down into the actual barrier chamber themselves, and when they go down there, uh, into the room, uh, let me see, is there a draven running around somewhere? No sights of a draven! Good question! But no, no sightings of any dravens in this situation. I'm glad to see he was on your mind, though. <laughs> So they go down, and the way that the chamber is laid out, of course, you've seen it in movies. There's like what look like bunk beds built in the wall where there'd be that there. Um, there are burial chambers. like There'll be like pillars holding up the floor, and they'll be like coming out almost like a, a, an X. There'll be four different, like would be like coffins or, or, or great place you could put bodies in. And looking through the area, um, in the there's a specific corner in the back corner where they would be going to get the flower. Um, Nathalian explains to them as they're making their way through, and when they get down, they barricade the doors behind them there as well. There's another set of doors. Um, as they get down there, they he explains that um, it only only a, uh, no sightings, not of Draven at all. That's correct. No one had seen Draven at all. The last time Draven was seen was long ago, back when uh, Artemis was walking through Arduel to get back to the ship after she'd been teaching there when they met Ulrich. So and this is several years ago at this point. It was the last time anyone saw Draven show up. Any word of him or anything. So it's been a couple years since she's had any, she's seen him. No one else, of course, knows what they'd be looking for, but no one else has seen Draven either. Nothing's popped up that way. So, um, Nathalian explains that it does grow on the, the graves of undead and, or I'm sorry, of, uh, on the graves of uh, the dead of the royal family, but um, over time, the magic of that grave goes away. So it has to be replanted on a more recent burial. And so he says, so he goes, right now, the only family member of the royal family who's passed at all where we will be able to get the flower is on the grave of his mother, who is buried in the, in a, in the final back right corner, which is where the kings and queens be buried inside and children in the front. And so they go in there to find it. But instead, they find that in a back, that back corner, there's a huge crack in the wall. And through that crack is a tunnel leading into the ground. And where his mother's grave or coffin would be, it appears from the marks of the ground, it was dragged into that crack. Nathalian is furious, right? Furious. His mother's grave has been 
I can't think of the word, messed with. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, the whole reason they came here, the flower would grow on it. There's no signs of the buzz. The flower would still be growing on it. Because, again, the way the thing works, it's oddly enough, the way, I, the way I'd process it out is that um, when the person's buried, on the graves, on the coffin itself, so basically like a sarcophagus, um, would be an image of an elf holding like a hand, like, like they're laying down and holding this, and inside of that, the hands is like a bowl where the plant would be. And so it siphons the magic up. It was, it was a magic thing. Um, and so he's very furious. But time is of the essence. They only have tonight to get a copy of this or to get this thing cut or else they'll have to wait a whole nother month. So without much other options, they go racing in. Uh, let me see here. We grab this. Hang on a second. I'll make sure I'm doing everything correct. Yes. So as... They make their way through this tunnel thing, which again, I've got some cool maps of. I really need to get scanned and loaded up for you guys. Um, but it does branch at different times, and they, they take different branches. And at the end of some of these branches are rooms. This is a classic dungeon crawl, D&D. So in each room, there is either some type of trap or puzzle, or there's a monster. That's just how dungeons work. And in this one, it's mostly things they have to fight. Um... They go down into the first room, and instead it's thick with spider webs. They have to cut their way through that. Guess what they got to fight? Wear spiders. You are correct. Again, there are three large wave, uh, wear spiders, um, and they have two sword spiders with them. Hello there, Patches. Hello, baby. Uh, sword spiders for D&D are incredibly giant spiders um, that have, like, basically blade the, the equivalent of blades as their front two legs. Uh, if I remember correctly, they can teleport. Or blink. They can't teleport to wherever, but they will blink ten feet one direction as they want. So they're really hard to fight. Um, so they had to deal with that. Uh, which was successful, obviously. But again, they had to deal with that. Um, they went down a little bit further. Um, they did, they end up skipping one of the rooms. They didn't mess it down. They did get to room three, and in room three, they was smells so bad as they're going down. The t- it just smells horrendous. And in there, they come across twenty were rats. So were rats are people as well. Uh, were rats are some of the weakest of undead or of, of were creatures, uh, but there was a lot of them. So it was a big fight. Luckily, they were in the tunnel, so they were able to, um, you know, kind of. I guess you say 300 at kind of where it's like we were two in the front, the ones in the back are defended. But the were rats had tunnels and it's like almost like a honeycomb. So they came out both ends. So we had Mercy and Michael on one end, Darsh and Nathaniel on the other, with uh, Dandy and Artemis in the middle casting spells and using ranged weapons. So there's fighting on both sides. Um, but they were successful in there as well. And. Uh, they fight their way through several different rooms, obviously, of different were-type creatures. And in every situation, there's always several were-creatures with several of the animals and such. <coughs> several of the animals and such that are um, that type. The were-crocodile had crocodiles. The were-rats had a bunch of rats. Bats, bats, that kind of thing. So they fight a bunch of animals as well. And they make their way through this fighting, and it's, it's, they take a bit of a beating, but they're busting their way through, and they're trying to hurry because they're trying to find the right way. But occasionally they find 
marks in the ground where something heavy was dragged, and that's the direction that they go. Dandy has to do a check at every intersection to see if she can find the tracks. Um, sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. When she doesn't, they have a 50-50 shot. If they go the wrong way, they got to fight a were-creature. If they go the right way, they get to continue on. So they, they did about 50% 50, 50 correct she was able to find it. Um, and so, just tracking was one, the one skill she was working on that wasn't as high as the others. But she does finally go ahead, and, and they're, they're following it, which let them skip some rooms. Sometimes they, they had to fight things. But finally, they make it to the end of the path. And do I have a reading for here? No. So, basically what happens, we get, they come down to one, and when they get to the end, they come across something they haven't seen before. Doors. Relatively decent doors that have been built into this tunnel. Uh, the doors aren't ornate in any way. They're just common wooden doors, but they're there. As they go up, Dandy checks it. Sure enough, it's trapped. She untraps it. Sure enough, it's locked. She unlocks it. There's no sound from inside, um, and the doors are pretty stiff, but Darsh puts his shoulder to it because they can't force it open. They have to literally bust it open, and they do. <clears throat> but inside of this chamber, it is very ornately decorated. So you can imagine, very comfortable pillows... You know, jewels, whatever, lights, torches uh, lit, candles and such. Tables with fine dining. Very, very nice inside. Um, let's see here. Oh, here we go. So, and sitting at the table eating a meal is a male and a female. The female appears to be a werefox. So half human, half fox. And for the record... One of the more powerful ones. But the gentleman sitting across from her is an elf. And for the record, they're all elves. Every time they kill somebody, the were-creatures and their bodies shift back, it's an elf. Somebody from the area. There's no humans or anything. It's, it's all elves. <clears throat> but uh, sitting across from them, <clears throat> wiping his mouth with his uh, napkin, is Tastadil, the oldest son. The crown prince of... Central. I must say, he said, I really didn't think you'd make it this far. Shocked, really. Um, he stands himself up, and he's got weapons and such. Um, Tastadil, I'm just going to tell you, Tastadil is a werelord. So a werelord is a were-creature that can take several different forms. Usually wolf is one of them, but it can sometimes turn into fox and such as well. But a werelord can control other were-creatures. And he doesn't... Anything he bites, he, he would create just like a, a regular like werewolf normally. Um, but other were-creatures magically would be attracted to him and such, and he would kind of command them and control them. Um, he explains, he goes, At first I was quite upset when Nat returned, but I realized how much better it was after I thought about it. Because he thought, you know, because imagine how furious the people of Santrael will be when they find out that Nathaniel, their recently returned youngest prince, was murdered by the PCs, by the characters here in the in this graveyard. Oh, hello, Patches. So, oh, got a kitty here. Um, he goes, when his body is found ripped and shredded, when I return, saying that I, fearing for his safety, taking several of my best men with me, we charged in to try to save him, but we're too late. 
but were able to avenge him by putting down his murderers. Which clearly shows that they were plotting with the humans and such outside of Santriel. And it'll only be days before there'll be open war between the kingdoms. He admits the loss of all the minions that they've killed hurts, but he says in the end it'll be profitable. They can be replaced. Nathaniel says, but why? I don't understand. You know, this is that part of the thing where he, he tells the story. It's the, the villain tells, explains his motivations. <laughs> Every James Bond movie ever, right? Because um, Nathaniel is totally confused. I don't understand. He goes, I, he was attacked 30 years ago by another warlord. And while he was able to kill it, it was not until after he'd been infected himself. And ever since then, because, you know, he was already a prick, but it, becoming a war creature does turn you more to evil. It's just one of those things, depending on what you get. It's part of the curse itself. Um, he'd been working to control the elves. The easy way to control them was to give them an enemy outside the kingdom that would... Um, allow him to slowly build his own were-creature army inside, and so on and so forth. Um, so, he had infected several humans in, as werewolves, and then had them kill his mother, which is what started this entire situation. It was the thing that, why the why all the warring with the other humans happened, and then when the merge happened, that put things a little bit um, oh yeah, she's purring right next to the microphone. She's loud. I apologize. Um, the merge hurt because now the kingdom that's outside were different humans. And while the king didn't want anything to do with them, he's like, I, I really can't, you know, kill them for crimes that were committed by other humans completely. And he goes, and that caused me worry, caused me work. Because he planned on killing his brothers as well, and then eventually his father and taking over the kingdom. Um, but then Nat disappeared, which worked. He assumed him dead anyways. And uh, he, he had to go a little bit slower now, because now he's been trying to sow the seeds of discord with the current humans in Arduel. Uh, but he explains he's slowly going to take over Santriel. Slowly, his goal is to infect um, everybody. <laughs> infect the elves over time, until he creates a great were nation, which they will slowly use to take over the world of immortal were creatures. That's his master plan. He's going to take over the thing and slowly convert many, many of the elves into were creatures. Is that okay with you, Patches? It's okay if we have some were creatures? No, not a were kitty. There may be were kitties, but not today. And sitting in the back of the room is his mother's grave with the uh, sovereign's breath growing on it. Because it does heal, and that was something he figured he'd hang on to in case of an emergency himself, right? Because who knows? Somebody might injure him or find him out. And so this has been his hidey place ever since. So, of course, you know, combat, right? Him and the werefox attack. They don't have any other creatures. It's just the two of them, but they really don't need it. Werelords are pretty boss. Um, and if you're looking at it from a D&D &D point of view, uh, at least in second edition, werelords can't even take damage. They're immune to any weapon less than a plus three bonus, which negates most of everybody's weapons. At this point, Mercy's Morningstar is um, a plus three, and Dandy has a dagger plus three. Um, but that's about it. And Menandra. Menandra can hit anything. 
It's just the magic of that can basically hit anything. It just does more damage against undead. But the way it's enchanted, uh, it causes damage to nearly every type of creature that's immune to anything but magical weapons. Couple minor exclusions to that, but we'll talk about that in the future. <laughs> so the battle goes on. The Werefox. Pretty powerful, obviously, his mate at this point. Um, not as powerful as him, and she falls first. Um, he's not heartbroken. There's no love there. She served a purpose. Um, but he attacks, and he, he changes his form a couple times, finally becomes the werewolf, and at that point, he's almost Darsh height. Like, he just becomes huge. Um, and there's a lot of fights going on. Nathalian uh, takes some serious wounds in this fight, as does um, Mercy again. Uh, Mercy, again runs into a bit of an issue. From a DM's point of view, I'm going to throw this at you. D&D. One of the issues with running a group of characters where one character outweighs the other. And I don't mean that in weight seriously, but if you take a look at the bonuses and perks that a Minotaur normally gets. More hit points, higher constitution, and can deal more damage due to his increased strength. In order to put a creature that will challenge him, sometimes the creatures are a little bit more powerful for the other characters there. And so, as a DM, you got to do a real careful balance of saying, okay, I'm putting stuff in here that everybody can deal with. That's not going to immediately wipe out the weak ones so the strong one survives, but at the same time isn't so weak that the strong one can just wipe them out in one hit. So a lot of times you'll see that there's... Mo the easiest ways a DM to do that is to bring several different types of creatures in that are all dangerous in different ways so that everybody has something they have to deal with. And, you know, it doesn't work in boss fights, but boss fights... You know, they go away. Sometimes Mercy's weapon, like in this situation, Darsh, his sword was a plus two. He had several plus two weapons. He had a lot of plus two and plus one weapons, to be honest. Oh, sword belt of three or four of them <laughs> and a battle axe. But none of them were enough to really hurt that. So a lot of it he was doing trying to more grapple um, or even use his one horn. Because remember, he broke one horn. Use his one horn. But he was trying to grapple so that the other things could do more damage. Uh, and that's something Darsh has done in the past in combat, where in a, in a battle where he doesn't have the ability to use weapons or his weapons are lost or something, uh, the ability to grab creatures his size or smaller and inhibit them from hurting everyone else may give a, a bonus to his allies hitting them, while at the same time increasing the risk he may get hit by accident. It's kind of the gamble Darsh takes when trying to do that. And that's what happened in here. But Mercy took a few hits before Darsh started to do that. And then it was Mercy that really did the majority of damage. Because Nathalian was down pretty quick. Uh, Tassidil targeted him very quickly. But after a, a battle... Because, again, Tassidil, not the big bad of this, of this part of the adventure. But not the big bad of the whole thing. We've got so much more to go. I want you to know that the adventure we're in now going to take months of me telling you this story just like I did the last one. This is just the introduction to what's going on here. I've already started many different seeds, which many of you probably know. I started the seeds of Thorman, there's an assassination. Undead are starting to pop up more. Right? Army to the west. They were attacked by two of the elites at the very beginning. Maybe some Minotaur stuff. I'm just saying, I've I've put a lot of different seeds out there, and while some of them may be rumors, some of them may end up being problems. But sure enough, eventually they beat Tastadil. When they defeat Tastadil, his body reverts back as well. Um, they're all beat up pretty hard. Nathalians, they managed to heal Nathalians enough that he could wake up, so he's able to cut the Sovereign's Breath, which he does. But he says, basically, once you cut it, 
uh, you've got like 24 hours to use it. So the plan had always been that she was going to take Darsh's ring, or no, wasn't it? She was going to use her ring to port back. Um, Mercy was going to go with her, but Mercy took a lot of damage, and she was unconscious at this time. So Dandy and Darsh are like, should we go? And, and Artemis is like, no, I'm just going to port back to the house where Molly is. I'll get the thing there. No one's going to know I'm coming anyways. I'll just quickly rush over there. And so Artemis decides that she's going to port back to Paxable with the thing. Because once he cuts it, he can give it to her. And she, can, but she has to get it there quickly. So that's what happens. He gives it to her and she pops. Um... This is what I read to her. Once again, you're standing in complete darkness. It only takes a moment for your elven eyes to move into the infrared spectrum. You stand in the familiar secret room in your old home in Paxwell, and everything appears as you last left it. Uh, she rings the bell just to be safe. Molly quickly gets up, comes down and meets her in the, in, in the main room, and she says she has to rush to the temple. She has to get there very quickly. Which she leaves. It's late at night at this point. It's probably 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. She only has a couple hours. So she uh, rushes on. As she makes... Her way, as you make your way through the dark, deserted streets towards the temple, you begin to get the eerie feeling that you are not alone. You increase your speed, but the feeling gets worse, and the streets are oh, the streets are nearly empty, more so than normal. You start to think it's all in your mind when you hear the footsteps behind you. They're quiet, and they're quick, and there are two sets of them. So she runs as fast as she possibly can, and as fast as she goes, she doesn't man's losing, but she does eventually um, get to the temple grounds, and she rushes on. There's always Templars standing outside. They see this cleric come running at full speed. They draw their weapons like, what's going on? And she quickly looks over her shoulder, and she sees what appears to be two figures in black fading into an alleyway. She tells the Templars, someone was just chasing me through the streets, but I've got to get to Brother Lycos. I have a cure for, I, I have a cure, but time is of the essence. One of the Templar goes, I'll see to the men. The other Templar rushes her into Lycos. And she rushes into the temple. Uh, Artemis and Lycos mix the petals from the sovereign's breath with water, which is what Nathalian told her to do. Carefully, they pour some of the mouths into the two ailing clerics. Then sitting next to them, all they could do was wait. Um... And I'll just start this here. Um, I'll tell you how we're going to start next week. This is the first thing that I'll start with next week. As Artemis fades from view, the rest of them are left alone. Pontius begins... Uh, or not Pontius, I'm sorry. Uh, Nathalian uh, begins wrapping up some of the wounds on his hands. Um, and uh, he stands there staring at his brother's corpse. And that's where we're going to start next time. Because we're running right at 2 hours and 40 minutes. Uh, but we're going to deal with the aftermath of Tastadil, and then we'll find out whether or not the Sovereign's Breath works. Um, but that's kind of where we're going, we're going to end today. Uh, they managed to go through there. Um, I can let you know that without the Werelord there, unless there's another one, but there isn't, um, the other were-creatures will eventually no longer be kind of drawn to that area, and they will split up and break off into certain areas, because were-creatures don't normally hang out together. You're not going to find were-rats and werewolves together. Where Some were-creatures, like a were-fox is solid. They won't even have another were-fox in the area. So, um, the were-creatures will eventually break out and move out, hopefully so much so that uh, it won't be a huge issue to be taken care of. But we'll deal a little bit with that next time.
Uh, I think this would work pretty well as a book. Yeah, eventually. Eventually I'll get there. I think it would work better as a graphic novel. It's kind of how I... Because I always want to write it into a book. But I think a graphic novel might be a better way to do it. Because then I could do the images and such. Um, and... Because a lot of times, as I'm telling a story, there's not a lot of conversation. There's little snippets of conversation, which would be easier in a comic with the word bubbles. Um, that's one thing. I thought about maybe down the road looking into doing it as a graphic novel. But yeah, I'd love to do it as a series of something. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to call that one for today. Because um, that has been fun. Yes, Patches, I know it's treats time. Leave me alone. <laughs> they want their treats. They know it's treats time. But thank you all for coming by. I had a really good time hanging out with you all today and beginning this story. And today, the story, um, it seems like a lot of stuff happened, but the story was a bit shallow. It's that way on purpose. Uh, because I'm really just setting the seeds for some bigger stuff to come. Uh, this introduction is meant to cause a specific event. And we're going to see what that is as early as next next uh, story time. So uh, two weeks from today, we will do this again. Um, I will have this up on iTunes and Spotify, uh, normally within 24 to 40 hours, depending on how quickly it loads from the uh, them. I'll have it done tomorrow. I'll get up there as quickly as I can. If you did enjoy it today and you haven't already, please be sure to click like. Uh, most importantly, remember to subscribe to the channel. Hey, you. Just subscribe to the channel so you can see all my videos, streams, tutorials, and all that stuff as they come out. Um, we also have a membership program you can join up if you'd like. There's a lot of cool perks and bonuses for that. Click the Join button on my YouTube channel. Uh, that doesn't sign you up, but it does take you to a page that shows you all the different perks and bonuses that come with an ODG membership. There are many. Uh, a lot like a Twitch subscription, except cheaper. It's only $2.99 a month. Um, check that out. See if it's something there you're interested in. And join our Discord channel. If you have questions about uh, Merge Worlds, you can direct message me there or put them in a Merge We have a Merge Worlds uh, uh, thread that you can jump in and post in. I'm happy to answer questions as long as they don't give away anything coming up. Uh, and I'd love to hear your feedback on what you think of the story. So definitely uh, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a button near the top of that that you can click on that'll take you right into our Discord channel. Everyone is welcome. You'll also find a lot of other interesting things on my website, like my streaming schedule, the ODG store for ODG merch, like the Draven's Dragons t-shirt, um, as well as uh, social media links and all that stuff. So thank you all for coming by to another Merge Worlds uh, story night with me. I had a blast telling it to you. I look forward to next time. Uh, special thank you to my members. Again, you guys are the ones that allow me to do a lot of this stuff. Your participation in that program means a lot to me, and I mean that. Um, and an extra special thank you to my moderators for helping the world keep rolling. <laughs> but thank you all again for coming by. You have yourself a great night, and good night to you as well, Teresa. And we shall all see you very soon tomorrow night for Halloween-themed Minecraft Monday. All right. You guys have yourself a great day.